Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Howdy, friends and neighbors, and welcome back to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I'm Michael, and my constant companion on this long and arduous journey is Cameron. Hey, you y'all better get y'all better elect me to that committee. I could do it better than fools in Boulder. <laughs> okay. I got policies. Plug in all the blenders, I say. We tried it their way. It don't work. <laughs> Go around deserted boulder and plug in every electronic item. That's that's my platform. <laughs> I think we should elect me right now. What do you think? Let's everybody, everybody clap hey, if you want to elect me. Let's elect him. Uh, my, hey, Stuart Redmond, get the hell on off that podium. Woo. <laughs> Go dogs. That would have made the middle of this book move a lot faster. If there'd been a, a, a guy who deposed Stu Redman. <laughs> <laughs> like, immediately. Yeah. It is, actually, I think it is a fundamental flaw. Now, having read this book, you know, a couple times uh-huh. uh, in the thing, I, I think you could resolve many of the... Very famously, I'm not inventing this, right? I'm not saying, hey, there's problems in this book. Stephen King... While writing it, and many times uh, since, has said, hey, the middle of this book doesn't really work because I got to Boulder and I had no idea what to do, so I just treaded water for 300 pages. Mm-hmm. This is the stand this complete version, and uncut, by the way. We haven't even said that yet. <laughs> oh, that's right. This is the stand complete and uncut. It's the biggest, longest version of the stand that you could possibly read. And in fact, unless you really do the digging like we did for our previous episode on the stand, uh, it might be hard to read anything that's not the complete and uncut. So if you go to a store and just pick this up, the chances of you just getting the complete and uncut or, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, for some reason, I thought the word revised was in there, but it, it is not. Uh, but this is just the version you'll pick up. But if if what happened is they got to Boulder, they tried to make a committee, and it didn't work. And some other assholes got elected. And then they they did their clandestine missions within that while avoiding the eye of, you know, the people who are uh, trying to build the new society. That would work so much better. Mm-hmm. There there would be actual drama that happens in Boulder. Yeah. Uh, but And it would remove them. You would just cut out the 50 pages at a whack of them being like, well, how are we going to implement policies for all these good folks? <laughs> How are we going? I don't want to be the sheriff. <laughs> there is this real sense that uh, in the middle of this book, it's like Stephen King wrote himself into like a sim game. <laughs> yeah, and it's just like trying yes. to figure out like how to 
how to like run a city uh, from first principles because he th- like, you know, he's talked multiple times about his method of, uh, uh, you know, not outlining of kind of just like going with things. And it feels like the the way the flow of things led him. He was just like, well, I guess I just got to imagine an entire like civics program from the ground up here. Like there's nothing else he I does. could possibly do. <laughs> well, what is the guy's name who like keeps standing up in the middle of meetings and interrupting everybody? Uh, I think that character's name is like Don Impening or something. Yeah, Impening, right? Yeah, uh, like uh, you're playing the sim game, the Boulder Free Zone Simulator, and Don Impening pops up and he's like, "You'll regret this! I can't believe <laughs> yes. that you're getting rid of the history museum and turning it into a hospital. Are you kidding me? You'll live to regret this, Stu Redman." Mm-hmm. In the middle of the game, you have to take like a four month break. And like, there's just a time skip in the simulator. (laughs) You come back, there's one baby. You got to reorient your whole program toward preserving the life of one baby. (sighs) Hashtag one baby. Hashtag. Goodness gracious. Yeah. So. All right. Great up. Yeah. Good up. Yeah. We read the stand again. That's all you need to know is uh, this is the only version you can really get now. So go listen to the first step. Everything here uh, is the same, except for all the things that aren't and all the things that aren't. You don't have a choice about. (laughs) Well, I mean, maybe we can start there Mm -hmm. even even before we get to the five cents summary. Mm -hmm. Is this book better than the uh, cut edition? Just this top line summary here. This is a very difficult question for me to answer because I have eaten of the fruit of knowledge and now I am cursed. <laughs> well, let's do this. Uh, let, let, uh, let's resolve it this way. How about okay. that? Okay. I'll do a three, two, one, and then in the in the beat after the one, just say yes or no. Is it better or not? We'll do it at the same time. Okay, you ready? Okay. So it'll okay. be like three, two, one, buh. And instead of but, you say yes or no. Mm-hmm. All right. So is the complete and uncut edition. And we have not talked about this. I'm, I'm doing this because it's fun. Because we haven't talked about it. If we think it's better or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right. So I'm going to three, two, one, but instead of but, say yes or no. Mm-hmm. So is the stand complete and uncut edition better than the cut edition of the stand? Mm-hmm. Three, two, one, no. no. Look at that. <laughs> it's not. No. It's a worse book by a fair margin. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think that'd be possible. <laughs> yeah. It's uh it's very it's very painful to say, I guess, in some ways, because of the pride of place that this book tends to have in uh people's lives and in kind of like the popular kingy and imaginary. Uh, but I, I gotta be honest, like, there's this weird thing that happens in having read both of these, where, like, my ideal version of the stand is the original text, plus maybe, like, two or three chapters from this one, and that's it. Like, a a, a medium-like version, right? Uh, extremely medium. Uh, but this actual text, uh... For all the, it adds some of the coolest stuff. All the stuff we talked about last time, where uh, people were like, "Oh, but what about this, that, or the other?" And we we're like, "Well, that doesn't show up in the cut text." Uh, that stuff is here, and it's still cool. Uh, but unfortunately, the all the other stuff that gets added in uh, 
so incredibly exacerbates the pacing issues that we talked about pretty extensively in that in that first version of the episode. Mm-hmm. You got to release the Lutz cut. <laughs> I'm going to do like a Topher Grace thing where he edits, <laughs> edited all the prequels together or whatever he did. Yeah, into one two hour movie. Yeah. Uh, the yeah, I, I mean, I think I think that's right. I I I'm astonished. It, it really is two novels. Like that, I think that might be the problem. It's mm-hmm. not a novel. Mm-hmm. It's two novels. It is a is an apocalypse novel, and then it is a like weird uh, metaphysical battle novel. Mm-hmm. And the expanded edition really makes that clear that those are two separate novels. Yeah, it is almost as if the Randall Flag stuff in the expanded edition, just because so much happens, there's 800 pages before that really kicks off. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it is so. Far, whereas that really starts at the midpoint of the cut edition. You mm-hmm. know, it's like. It, there's a slow slide, at least there. You know, the dreams start introducing it, and then it starts becoming more, uh, 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 you know, uh, important. And then we start getting all the POV characters from the flag side, right? And we start getting Vegas. And in the cut edition, Vegas to, uh, 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 not not Vegas, but Boulder to Vegas is probably two to one. Something like that in, in mm-hmm. terms of like the amount of words, right? You get a lot of Vegas. You really feel like you get a picture. In the expanded edition, it's like eight to one. Mm-hmm. It, it, it all Only Boulder expands. And I think we get one additional scene maybe or one additional kind of like chaptery scene. I can't remember if the scene where the guy who's freebasing gets crucified. I can't remember if that is in the original edition or not. I can't remember quite. I, I felt like it wasn't. Um but but that gives you this kind of additional thing, whereas in the original book, I think we mostly just heard that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, people who are doing the stuff Flag doesn't like are getting crucified. But we get like a really in-depth scene about that um, here. But but it really, like, I, I think you're right. It, it exacerbates pacing issues and it really exacerbates like big structural issues of like, what do we know and when do we know it and why does it matter? Mm-hmm. Um, it also just really briefly before we get to maybe the five cent summary and then we can talk about uh or, or actually maybe we can go into like the um why does this exist thing <laughs> yeah but uh but what was really weird to me is the the complete non-cut edition repeats itself over and over and over again mm-hmm. like sometimes chapter to chapter sometimes people will say nearly the same thing chapter to chapter yeah it turns out when you take an edited manuscript and you unedit it, uh, a whole bunch of issues <laughs> appear, right? They manifest themselves, and that's one of them. It's true. Well, Michael, why does this thing exist? I know that you've done a little digging around. So, uh, it's interesting that this exists. Stephen King says... Uh, in in various places, um, both kind of in some stuff that I think I read in Castle Rock, but also things that I've read outside of it, uh, that the complete and uncut text of this comes about because uh, he says that whenever he's giving a reading or making an appearance somewhere, um, he is often approached by people who say that they really love The Stand. You know, it's like their favorite book or whatever. And then... Uh, he says that these people then express interest in the complete and uncut text. I think there's some steps missing here. <laughs> uh, because, you know, 
Stephen, like, there's not much that I have been found, I have been able to find where Stephen King is talking about the complete and uncut text. Uh, there's never, like, you know, something in Castle Rock where he's like, by the way, here's what I had to cut or what have you. Um, uh, you know, it, it, he he talks about it as if it's like uh, grassroots, like coming up from nowhere. People just know. People just know that there is uh, a, a lot that got cut from this, and I'm sure that some people are aware, right? That is a thing that he's been uh, open about. That there was like, you know, uh, there were all these considerations when this was published with Doubleday originally, like the literally is this going to be cost effective for the amount of paper we will have to use to print this thing will we be able to sell it at a price that actually turns a profit no like let's cut out a bunch of this uh so you know that's it's true that people know or could know that it's been edited uh but i don't know if there are a lot of people like i I just I have never actually seen apart from Stephen King asserting that this has happened. I didn't see anyone anywhere saying like what I really want is the complete and uncut stand. So just to speculate here, I suspect one of the ways that this works out is that someone comes up to Steve while he's at a reading or, you know, he's doing a signing and they're like, you know what? Uh, The stand is one of my favorite books. I really love that. And then Steve being Steve good friendly guy is like yeah i'm so glad you like it you know uh when that got published double day made me cut out a third of the novel and the person who he's talking to says wow i'd really love to be able to read that and then we go on with our day Mm -hmm. uh the other thing that i was able to find was in castle rock uh kirby mcculley uh, King's agent, who sort of notably also is uh, someone who gets dropped before this is even published. Uh, he, he, uh, Macaulay is dropped uh, after the Tommyknockers. Um, he gives an interview in Castle Rock in 88, I believe, uh, when the complete and uncut edition is announced. And it's kind of a, a, a big deal because this is a weird arrangement <laughs> to have written a book, uh, had it edited down, have it published, and then uh, publish a new edition later that's been revised and expanded. Uh, and McCulley sort of talks about uh, basically that like there was he he also like echoes Steve in saying that there was like reader interest, um, but also as as the agent, um, it's pretty clear that he's just like, you know, also the money was on our side. At this point, Steve is enough of a name that he can kind of like make these demands. And it seems like McCulley, for whatever reason, is going along with that. Uh, so he just talks about how this is a very unusual deal. He compares it to um, uh, John Fowles' uh, novel, The Magus, uh, which actually had a similar thing going on. John Fowles is a, a, a British novelist who... Um, actually has shown up a little bit uh, elsewhere. He got name-checked mm-hmm. in Misery um, because he wrote a serial killer novel. Uh, but he wrote this novel called The Magus that, uh, I think it was his first novel, it's published one way, and then maybe like 10 years later, he published uh, an expanded edition that actually really changed some of that novel. Like, uh, uh, you know, it was a significant revision um, in a similar way to what is happening here. Uh, but... You know, apart from kind of being able to say John Fowles also did this, uh, McCulley also doesn't really get into uh, sort of the specifics here. It's more just like, you know, Steve wanted this version to be read or he wanted it to be uh, uh, kind of available to people. And so so that's what's going to happen. 
Yeah, you sent me a video of Stephen King doing a promo for like Walden books or something like that. Yeah, uh, I don't remember if it was Walden. Yeah, it's uh, him explaining to uh, kind of booksellers how to uh, (laughs) sell people on this book, because the obvious question that people are going to have is like, I already read The Stand. It came out 10 years ago. Why is it here again? Like, what is what is in this for me? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a great moment of uh, Stephen King made this world, but <laughs> you know, in the sense of like uh, all this discussion around um, remasters, remakes in video games, all that kind of stuff. I just, well, hey, just look at the stand. Mm-hmm. You just added better graphics, <laughs> it, it, just more graphical descriptions of the same things that are in the other edition. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? This is you get a fire truck upgrade. You know, you get <laughs> oh, we get DLC character the kid. <laughs> that's you true know, the kid- integrated into the main plot oh my god <laughs> um but- all dates are updated to reflect the concerns of the 90s <laughs> yeah george 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 uh herbert walker bush gets uh you know St- king goes after him he really gives him what for mm-hmm. uh in the late 80s here but uh for the early 90s but uh yeah you know the This, the Stand Complete and Uncut, King was talking about that in interviews about the five-book year. You know, he was like, and also somewhere in the mix here is the Stand Complete and Uncut. Um, And so he already knew he wanted to do it, like, in 85, I think, 86. Hmm. Um, Because it's, what, completed in 88, the the new edition? Yeah, I think so. He has a date here in the back. Yeah, December 1988. Yeah, so he's talking. He's you know talking about it quite a few years earlier than that. But that the Walden books or whatever the bookseller, uh, it might be a B Walden. Is that no no B Dalton? <laughs> is that the name of a, a, a bookstore that, that is defunct? I don't didn't have know. That. Hold on, let me look here. B Dalton bookstore. Yes, B Dalton bookstore. Oh my god! It was eaten by Barnes and Noble. Oh. The B the no the B in Barnes and Noble is the B and B Uh we've we've cracked this wide open. Um but uh yeah, I think it was it was for one of those. Walden books, uh B Dalton, one of those. And but yeah, the interview is very funny, or like the piece is very funny because you're like, Yeah, buy it. Have you thought about buying my new book? It's got all the stuff I put in it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like there's no there's no rationale, but and and can can we just say I think it's just to print some money? Okay, yeah. You know, I mean, right? Like, mm-hmm. could, don't you think that Stephen King could do this for every single book and people would buy it? Oh, yeah, certainly. Yes. You know, the uh, uh, Cujo complete and uncut. <laughs> we, we learn all about the uh, the bat. Yeah. We get, we get 40 pages about the bat at the beginning. Yeah, I wonder if part of the issue is just like, uh, this is the only book that he has had at this point has had uh, substantially edited down in a way that made this even possible. Yeah, that's true. I guess. Right. Uh, yeah. The, the other edit, like addition edits that have happened, you know, rage is just not printed anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, so just struck from the record and uh, the gunslinger and those kind of updates. I think only the gunslinger was updated, right? Yep. Only um, the gunslinger. Right, and so that, but that's just an update to kind of bring it closer to the canon established later on. It's not really a, you know, I w- <laughs> they wouldn't let me put the Taheen in the gunslinger. <laughs> yeah, 
I'm going back. I'm Stephen King, and I'm going back to put the tahine in the gunslinger, and also to make Roland less of a murderer. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, other stuff, other things we need to know here at the top, uh, before I summarize the book, 20 um, minutes in. Yeah, I, I think that's really kind of it. It's, it's, uh, I'll be honest, uh, there were large parts of reading this book where I was like simmeringly angry with you for locking us into having done both editions, uh, ultimately because... It is a huge waste of time. <laughs> yes, right. It is. It's bizarre because, like you said, it does make it a different book. Like they, these changes do matter, and at the same time, the distinct versions of this book are not in any way like illuminating to one another exactly. Like I don't say, I don't think my life has been improved <laughs> by knowing. No, I think my life is worse because I, I honestly had. Before this moment, I could have had this fantasy, right, where, hey, we read the original Stand. Big picture, not very good, but got some really good moments in it. And Stephen King went and fixed that, and we all know that that's a really good book now. Mm -hmm. You know? That was that was lingering in the back of my mind. Uh, the original one, oh, whatever, but the, that complete and uncut, it's great. It's got all those pieces we all talk about. Lo and behold, that isn't true. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's still not very good, which is astonishing to me. And also, maybe this is like the inverse, uh, uh, you know, the um, whatever the opposite of the 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 method paying off is the the method taking <laughs> taking away <laughs> is that I just like especially this, especially reading the stand here in, in the run of books that we've done over the past ten or so, right? Like this doesn't even rank in the last ten. This is not. Uh, I don't even know if this is middle of the pack since Christine, just to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I, I, this, misery is better than this book. I I just, I have a, such a, I, this has lowered my estimation yeah. of the stand. Yeah, I, yeah. Um, if you, if you ask me to rank all of these, uh, and we're counting the original stand and the complete uncut as two different texts, and I'm not allowed to make my hypothesized, you know, Lutz cut of, of my mm -hmm. ideal text, like, the, the first version is just better. Yeah, just just straight up there. All right. Well, here's the straight, here's the uh, five cent summary before we talk about some of the big differences, at least, because uh, we're not. I don't. I don't think it. I think it, uh, totally big picture. I'm negative on the book itself. I think it's a worse book. But of course, all those pieces that we talked about, you know, in in the thing that are added, they are very cool. So mm -hmm. we'll talk about those, even though lots of them are just like references to the '90s and, and late '80s. Five cents summary. Uh, this is the part where we uh, talk about the plot of the entire book beginning to end in five sentences. As this has somehow gotten easier. Uh, uh, here we go. Mm -hmm. Everyone dies due to a disease called tube neck that emanates from a shadowy government facility. A ragtag group of cursed, damned, and inculified human beings make their way to two capitals on the planet, a.k.a. the United States. <laughs> Period. Las Vegas is where Randall Flagg, the goofball king of the western United States, makes his home, colon. No, semicolon. Boulder, Colorado is where Mother Abigail goes and dies, along with a bunch of other people. Period. 
Randall Flagg explodes in the goofiest, worst way possible, open parentheses, somehow even less sensical than the original edition of this book, close parentheses, period. They still go to Maine at the end. <laughs> period. <laughs> like, the, the official, like, fifth... <laughs> Fifth sentence of every summary from here forward is they still go to Maine in the end. They still do. They somehow make their way to Maine. <sighs> yep. I didn't have an opportunity because I had not finished the book. I, I want to get this out of the way real quick. No, you know what? I'll save it. I'll okay. save it for the end okay. because we do want to talk about it. I want to talk about Randall Flagg at the very end because I have one small thing to say about it. I just thought about it, but maybe we should probably save it. Okay. Uh. What do you think about all this additional plague stuff? This is the stuff that people so strongly remember, mm-hmm. and yet is uh, not not there really in the in the original edition. Yeah, and, it, and it's back. Yeah, um, I would say of the things that uh, were cut from the original text, these are the things that I am most sad are not in in the original version. Uh, I think, as we said in our first episode on this book. Uh, these are the sections, um, the chapter called like no great loss, uh, or like, it's not called that, but, uh, it's how everyone kind of talks about it or refers to it or remembers it. These moments where Stephen King does his kind of wandering eye camera that, uh, previously he's used to do things like show us what various people in the town of Salem's lot are up to, uh, and give us kind of the sense of, the whole uh, life world and all these kind of actors kind of ping-ponging off of each other or kind of like, you know, existing alongside one another. Uh, The thing that he did to really great effect there comes back here, except he's doing it on the scale of the entire United States. Um, And it's pretty damn cool. There's also uh, just... Because it wouldn't be Steve if, if it didn't work out like this. It's pretty damn cool. And also some of the most dubious shit shows up in this uh, uh, these editions as well. <laughs> I'm thinking specifically of the, uh, uh, I guess, like detachment or, or company or whatever. Uh, a group of uh, black United States soldiers who uh, take over a news studio and start executing all of their like uh, white commanders on air while uh wearing nothing except thongs right right yep and it's that's something yep it's like wow there's a there's there's an anxiety i guess here uh mm-hmm hey you know uh, how horror is a fundamentally conservative genre mm-hmm for who right <laughs> It was a reference to, to Dance Macabre, if you're interested in <laughs> unpacking that and understanding uh, how Steve wrote about that. And by the way, oh, let me say this. Is it here where this shows up? Hold on. Let me make sure. I believe so. Yes. So we didn't talk about this yet, but there's a preface to this book. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And what is quite interesting to me is we received a review that I lightly made fun of uh, here on this program uh, more than one time, <laughs> I think. That, that basically said, hey, um, and this is a reasonable comment to make. I, I actually, you know, I, I roasted it a bit. This is a reasonable comment, I guess, which is like Stephen King's writing for 20 years at this point, more than 20 years at the point where we are in the timeline, you know, uh, and uh, we're still holding on to some ideas 
from, say, Dance Macabre, which is quite a long time ago in terms of the thing, in our way of explaining Stephen King's like thinking and things like that, right? So when we talk about the way that, that King is representing something or, or positioning it, or like you just said, right, uh, presenting a fundamental kind of anxiety, he goes into that quite often in Dance Macabre, right? Like, what is the function of horror? How does it operate? How does it operate for kind of the normative or standard or core audience, you know, whatever term you want to use here? Uh, that uh, that then sees something scary, right? Like, uh, so you know, think about within the Stephen King theorization, right? Uh, Michael Myers stands in for, uh, you know, the the anonymous murdering white man mm-hmm. who follows the, you know these women around and kills them, things like that. Well, lo and behold, somewhere, I wish I had marked it here, um, Stephen King says, hey, if you really want to know everything I think about horror, you should just go back and read Dance Macabre. <laughs> so, uh, checkmate. Yeah. <laughs> Buster. I mean, I, yeah, I, I'll, I'll stop bringing up Dan's Macabre when the ideas lose their explanatory power for what's happening in the book. Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, I'll stop. Uh, I'll stop talking about Dance Macabre when Stephen King stops referencing it as his core thing. But yeah, he says here. Um, he talks about the story, uh, and he says for readers who are interested, the story is told in the final chapter of Dance Macabre, a rambling but user friendly overview of the horror genre I published in 1981. This is not a commercial for that book. I'm just stating the tale here. Uh, tale is there if you want it, although it's not. Uh, although it's told not because it's interesting in itself, but to illustrate an entirely different point. So, Dance Macabre is still an illustrative source text for Stephen King. Um, weirdly enough, though, as uh, as you were talking about, this this is a preface that tells you nothing about this book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do love the little, like, part one, part two. Part one is like, hey, this is the stand, but with more stuff. This is why you might want to buy it. Mm-hmm. Uh, is this also, this is a question for you, just because truly I don't know. Is this the first place Constant Reader is showing up, or am I just forgetting it from other places we talked about it? I think it might be the first actual use of constant reader. That's fascinating because we haven't really talked about that because that's a thing you associate with Stephen King. Yes. You know, he is constantly saying that, but I'm, I'm really having a trouble maybe in night shift or in skeleton crew. Yeah, maybe, you yeah. know, in the explanatory stuff at the end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It might've shown up there. Uh, yeah. Just cause uh, really up until this point, uh, there haven't, been that many places in the books for Steve to directly address the reader in the way that he does when he's using the constant reader format. Right. Um, so I thought that was notable. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Uh, you know, it also wouldn't, as you said, like dubious stuff in these additional scenes. It also wouldn't be that if we did not uh, gruesomely murder a child. Uh-huh. Pretty brutal. Yeah. Or like structure, you know, for as much as I like it, the no great loss thing is is structured entirely around uh, a woman with uh, anxiety, like a, 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 a phobia and anxiety, a fear of being raped. And it's sort of not it's played for for a bit of comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That she that that she is saved by the divine grace of some, you know, greater being and ultimately uh, isn't she the one who the gun blows up and kills her? Yes. Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, so she finally makes her way out uh, of her house. There is a mildly threatening human being who is there. She very calmly whips out a gun to obliterate this dude, and it blows up and, and kills her. Yeah. Uh, a lot of guns that blow up in this book, by the <laughs> way. That's not that common. Was that more common in the seventies? Because it's really not that common of an occurrence. I don't think. Yeah, I don't know. I mean the. 
So uh, uh, just to, if, if for some reason you haven't read either of the texts here, just to elaborate a little bit more, um, some of the uh, things that we're describing about the the like larger world, like this woman with the gun and everything, uh, the No Great Loss chapter, as I have continued to refer to it, uh, is kind of this chapter where uh, Steve works through like all of the people who were not naturally immune to the the super flu, or actually all the people who were naturally immune to the super flu, uh, who nevertheless died, who didn't become part of like the big metaphysical battle between good and evil because they died before the chess pieces pieces could really start to move. Um, and that's just like a cool idea, right? Like that, cause we already have, uh, this plague that's working through, uh, like, you know, decimating the world, uh, and our protagonists are all people who are kind of just mysteriously immune. There's, there's, uh, at that point, no clear reason why they just are. Uh, so you know that there are people who are immune and people who aren't. Uh, and then, uh, it's, it follows through on the logic, right? The kind of extrapolative logic of, well, you know, not everyone who is immune necessarily ends up surviving through the rest of what's to follow. What happens to those people? Like, let's take a few uh, 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 little snapshots of those folks. Uh, the other thing that we get is sort of more more scenes of like government breakdown and like military unrest and, uh, uh, you know, turning against civilians and things like that. So uh, weirdly enough, more of the like late 70s uh political paranoia uh comes back here in a mm -hmm. book that has been uh we must probably highlight this as well uh anomalously updated to take place in 1990 uh yeah and um i i it it gives steve the opportunity to pepper in a lot of 80s references mhm mm and it gives him a wider soundtrack to work with, too. It does. So that's pretty good. That's pretty good. But also, like, at, in, at no point has, in any of the things that I've read or watched, does Steve talk about why it was changed from the 70s to the 90s? It just is. And it's it's an odd choice, uh, you know, partly because uh, it does give the book a kind of weird... Uh, I remember reading this when I was for the first time, I was probably like 12 or 13 or something and not a, you know, I was 12 or 13 year old boy. I didn't have a great sense for uh, the distinct time periods of, of recent American history. Uh, and even then I could feel kind of the, the tension or sort of like this weird pull. So uh, one of the uh, contemporary reviews of this edition that I read uh, mentioned that like the, uh, Despite these updates, uh, King's characters nevertheless have an incredibly textured knowledge of like 60s folk rock. <laughs> uh, and, and that sort of thing like <laughs> did jump out at me is like there's there, there's like a there are things in here that feel very 80s, very 90s. And then there are things that feel very much older than that. Well, yeah, of course, because uh, Glenn Bateman would be talking about like the theory wars and sociology. The Sokol hoax would be involved <laughs> somehow. Although I think that might still be to come in the timeline. But you know, like, can you imagine him like talking about postmodernism? Oh my god, uh, Glenn Bateman's like uh, a discursus on postmodernism in the middle of his like theory that the human being is naturally psychic. And that society yeah, the telephone camps. ruined it. Yeah, like society uh, strips away our inherent psychic abilities. 
<laughs> yeah, Glenn Bateman is made to do a lot more in this book. Yes. And I don't know if it's better. I think Glenn Bateman is such a, like, um, e- like just a slam dunk of a character, right? Like, in terms of, like, his function and, and how he plays as a character uh, he, in the original book in particular, right? And then in the adaptations, too, he's, like, he's this affable man who kind of, like, hates society in a broad and general sense. And he's there to, like, spout wisdom. You know, he's just an uh, exposition character. Mm-hmm. And then he explodes, Yeah, you know, literally. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. That, like, totally works. But within the context of the expanded edition, he really feels like some sort of, like, um, I don't know, like... He functions in the way that Eeyore functions in the Winnie the Pooh cartoons. <laughs> You know what I'm talking about? Where it's like, hey, everybody, like Rabbit, Piglet, you know, uh-huh. uh, Winnie the Pooh, they're all having their adventure. You know, Tigger's there. It's wild. And then and then Glenn Bateman comes along to tell you about all the things that human beings have lost. <laughs> oh, we're going to remake society again. And then he just fucks off again for like 250 pages. Mm-hmm. And he'll just be there like... Uh, like sharing a long look with Stu Redman. That's half of Glenn Bateman's actions in this novel is locking eyes with Stu Redman while something else is happening. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, he's just the guy, the guy to be there. And then they like gently rib each other because uh, uh, did you know that Glenn Bateman is bald? Because Stu Redman is going oh, to only Jesus address him Christ. as baldy for like seven hundred pages. Hey, listen, East Texas. <laughs> Hey, listen, Indiana. Don't tell me about that. <laughs> we named the dog Indiana. <laughs> uh, the uh, but yeah, right. Uh, the, the, I will say the additional length really does make all of that great more. Uh, mm-hmm. Just because it, it does, it happens like nine hundred more times. Yeah, like there are just uh, so many points where like Glenn Bateman has to like just extemporize his theories about society and how the world works and what the human being is. And posit them to his like six friends uh, mm-hmm. about like h- how they need to rebuild society or not rebuild society in line with these ideas that he has. Yeah, it, well, so this makes me actually think about another thing, and it's uh, something I I asked you about because I knew you were kind of digging into this and doing research, and I don't think we have a solid answer one way or the other. This book is posited as being the complete and uncut edition, Mm -hmm. meaning that there's a lot of content that has been restored Mm -hmm. that previously existed. Mm -hmm. And but also we know this update occurred, Mm -hmm. you know, that that edits the novel to bring it in line. And I'm just going to be honest with you. uh, The Trash Can Man additional stuff that doesn't read like 1970s King. You know what I mean? Like that doesn't sound like that. A lot of this stuff that is and just totally to be honest too no great loss doesn't either the method does right this kind of zooming around but you know king pretty famously said around pet cemetery he wasn't sure that he could publish that novel because of what's happening there not just the grief uh kind of narrative that goes on but the the absolute uh, annihilative murder of a child mm-hmm. i don't feel like his first pass at that would have been the no great <laughs> loss chapter you know what i mean and so i do have this lingering question about what 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 was in the original thing and what wasn't. And the reason I bring that up here, uh, and, and I'm sure you have thoughts on that, mm-hmm. but the reason I bring that up here is that this Glenn Bateman stuff actually does feel like it's 70s King. Mm-hmm. And it, it it pokes at a thing that uh, that we both talked about in that original episode, which is on, on stand, the, the cut stand, which is 
this is a transformation novel from a science fiction kind of Stephen Kingy thing, you know, especially around TK and 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 that kind of stuff, to a more fantastical King. But if this Glenn Bateman stuff was in there, it would have been both kind of equally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when he made the cut, he cut toward Lord of the Rings and away from science fiction, mm-hmm. uh, which is really notable to me. Um, but I don't know. Maybe you have thoughts, too, about this. What is added? What is edited? What is new? What is old? Yeah. Uh, so I agree with you about the Glenn Bateman stuff. There's something so very uh, like 70s New Agey about everything added for Glenn Bateman here. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So I just, yeah, I, I think that's definitely the case. Uh, on the no great loss with the, the child falling down a well and, and you know, dying in misery, uh I will say uh, one of the things that I think does change that maybe lets us say that this is something that is original uh, to the text uh, is that I think one of the things that makes Pet Cemetery so horrific uh, is not so much that it's about the death of a child, but about everything that has happened in Stephen King's life recently with that, uh, with oh, Owen's right, health right. issues. Uh, and I believe it's Joe, maybe it is, maybe it is Owen, who uh, like goes running toward the road and they manage to catch him. And then Steve thinks like, what if we didn't catch him? And, you know, from there on the entire novel kind of spools out in his head. Uh, right. Right. I think, uh, I could see like the, the younger, uh, sort of more devil may care King who's not as successful, who maybe hasn't had like this actual close call with a, a child's health and, and potential death. Um, being a bit more cavalier with that, uh, kid falling down the well. um, one other thing that I do know is that the first chapter, is it even a first chapter? Or is it a prologue? I think it's a first chapter. Yeah, chapter one. Uh, no, wait. No, it is called a, is it called a prologue. We got a preface. We got, uh, oh, I'm flipping two. It's, we got a dedication. It's, it's to Tabby. Yeah. Uh, preface in two parts. And then the circle opens. Yeah. I guess is it, what it's called. Yeah, it's just called the circle opens. Yeah. So it's, it's a prologue, right? It's a little introductory chapter. Um, yeah. This is the uh, the scene where Campion, the guy who's a, a, like a security guard at the government facility where the, the super flu was created, he wakes up his wife in the middle of the night, tells her that something has gone wrong, get the baby, like we're going to leave. And then they flee and they end up uh, running into Stuart Redman in, in East Texas, and then the entire novel happens. Uh, this chapter, from what I have read and or heard from King, this was something that was written... And added. Not something that was in the original draft. Um, I don't know what we do with that, but there, uh, it seems so that we'll get there eventually. But like the ending is also different here. There's like an additional kind of ending chapter, a kind of epilogue. Uh, and King specifically said that the epilogue is restored, but the opening chapter is uh, a new edition. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And there was a boot in the door oh my god <laughs> check out the uh bonus ode for this we got kirk hamilton on the bonus ode uh talking about the 2020 adaptation of uh the thing we're talking about all what 10 episodes nine something like that nine episodes uh and uh about what they do how it works and uh they do a little maneuver i'll give you a little spoiler they do a little maneuver in that if you haven't seen it where they assert that uh the thing that keeps the door open for campion is not just some sort of error uh you know a technological wonder uh uh, that allows him to escape just you know 
which would feed into all these ideas about like, you know, they made the bug and then they let it free because the technology couldn't, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like they built too much. They couldn't help it, Uh, which is all this kind of anti-government, anti-techno wonder kind of stuff, right? Uh, in the, in that, uh, Randall Flagg just keeps it op- the door open with his boot. <laughs> yep. <laughs> He's just hanging out by the side of the frame, holding the door open. Just hanging. Got one decorative boot. The, uh, so yeah, that's, that's what's happening there. So check it out. Patreon.com slash ranged touch. You can go there right now and you can listen to it. It's a pretty lengthy episode, but not, not too, um, you know, it's not, it's not a four hour app. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's three yeah. guys talking about nine hours of television, so. Yeah, yeah, so that, but uh, so yeah, we have some interesting things to say. You uh, you get to hear Kirk being probably as negative as I've ever heard Kirk <laughs> be about anything. Yeah, uh, not about the whole project necessarily, about very specific things. So that's it's it's quite entertaining. We also get the fa- uh, you know uh, there there sh- there will be a t shirt available right now uh, if you go to rangetouch.com slash shop. Is that true? I don't remember. I don't remember either. Let's check it out. Rangetouch.com slash shop. It'll take you to our tea public store, and there will be a uh, shirt there that has this on the front. Just King Things is my favorite podcast. <laughs> and that's from Kirk Hamilton, of course. So that, that shirt will be available this very moment. You should go check it out right now. Um, uh, but uh, I'm trying to think of other early, early novel stuff that matters here. There's no great loss. Of course, we get a little bit more Larry. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I, I do really think because, you know, uh, Kirk too, in that episode in, in both in our original, uh, bonus ode in this, this, uh, next one or this newest one mentions, uh, you know how he thinks that the book should kind of or adaptation should be structured around Larry and how Larry is one of the stronger characters of the book. And I didn't necessarily feel that way for the original edition, but I do feel that way. I, I totally understand where that perspective comes from with the expanded and uncut edition. Mm-hmm. Um, the main characters of this are Larry, Stu, and Franny. Yes, and even the other main characters are hyper sidelined compared to that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And like of those three, uh, Larry is the one who is the most dynamic because he's actually got an arc, right? He's got kind of these, uh, not this actually, I I think Franny, um, unfortunately, no, is a little bit second banana to him. Uh, but like Larry has all of these like self doubts about like what type of person he is. Uh, you know, is he like just kind of innately an asshole? Cause he finds himself constantly like making decisions that, uh, piss off or hurt the people around him, uh, in ways that he is like both conscious and unconscious of at the time that he makes those decisions. And he just sort of like works through all of that. Uh, Franny has uh, a bit more, this is actually something to talk about. Franny's, um, uh, pregnancy and kind of her feelings about that are uh, her her own kind of plot, but it also sort of disappears at the halfway point when she meets Stu, uh, who has absolutely no arc. Like Stu is just a good guy, and he's a he starts as a good guy, and he maintains being a good guy from beginning to end. Like that's just Stu. Uh, yeah it's astonishing i mean it's great like he he is the i know that this uh, in the age of twitter is a loaded statement to make but 
Stu Redman, he's a Mary Stu, quite literally, right? <laughs> yes. Like he's just he's just a guy to be in the plot and do all the good Golden Boy stuff, mm-hmm. you know. And nothing nothing truly bad can happen to Stu Redman, right? He's not he's not a, a tempted in the way that Larry can be tempted, right? Larry is visited no. by Flag in some dreams, Mother Abigail in others, uh, and it, for Stu, it's yeah, just it's it, Mother Abigail forever. And there and there's opportunity to do that, right? So there's there's one point where they're like, we need to have law enforcement of some sort. Stu, it's you, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you know you're the good guy, and you could. It would be really easy to introduce a kind of arc here where there had been no arc before of Stu Redman, you know, the kind of paladin problem, right? Mm-hmm. Like Stu Redman get, gets a little power mad, right? You know, and that that could be a little bit of an engine in the middle here when Mother Abigail. There's a point where Mother Abigail goes out into, um, uh, the oh, well, let me say this really quick. Sorry. That, as you said before, that's the plot, right? All these people die. Uh, there are two large camps. There's Flag, the Dark Man, that people dream of, and he has his own thing going on. And then the people dream of Mother Abigail, who is kind of this um, representative of God or the White or some good numinous force. And those people end up going to Boulder. Uh, and then, like, plotty plot stuff happens after that. But but Mother Abigail is this kind of figurehead that they all m- move toward, if you if you haven't read this novel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but yeah, you could have a thing where, like, in Mother Abigail's absence, Stu is trying to be the good guy for everyone, and he's doing it as a cop, and then that produces bad outcomes. You could you could add an arc in here. It would be quite easy to do. Right. Uh, and, oh, uh, but <laughs> King is like, nah, I'm good. Yeah. He's, he's just a good guy, and he hates being a police officer. Right, and, and that would be so good, right? Because then when Mother Abigail comes back and she comes back from the wilderness and she's near death and that's when she says to them like you like she's gotten her basically her message from God uh, and the message from God is you guys need to walk to Las Vegas and uh, have a showdown with with the dark man Um, that would add so much more weight to like stews you know acquiescence to that demand like you know it it becomes his like escape of uh authority or power Mm -hmm. right his escape from temptation is literally like you know going off to do the thing right he's got to put down the gun too Mm -hmm. you know what i mean like it's not because she says you got to go with the clothes on your back right so he's got to put the gun down Mm -hmm. you know he's got to put put up the uniform right and, and really, I mean, we're fanficking up things in the middle here because there truly is 300 pages of treading water. Mm-hmm. There's 300 pages of like, hey, you think we're going to get the power on? Hey, there's a guy who's smashing all the windows in town. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, here's Harold Lauder's, um, you know, rude dude with an attitude document. Yeah. <laughs> like, it re- there's just not a lot that here's scene number eight of Nadine and Larry talking. Mm hmm. Um, they're, they're, you know, it's it's pretty slow going in the middle, uh, and I think adding back the pieces that were edited out here really makes it feel quite worse. But so, beginning of the novel uh, is all these pieces, right? All these characters kind of running together. We got Stu Redman, we got Nick Andrus, we got Franny Goldsmith, we got Harold Lauder, we've got some other people who I'm I'm blanking on. I mean, like Tom Cullen. We got Tom Collin, right? Oh, I, I I think I will say too. You know, we talked about in the adaptation that Nick Andros really gets sidelined in that adaptation in a major way. Mm-hmm. But I think, like screen time wise, it might be about the same. Yeah, like he's really sidelined in this novel yeah. in a way that I was not prepared for, given the previous a- edition. Yeah, Nick feels overall very reduced uh, 
in this edition as well compared to the other characters, which is interesting because there is more stuff added with him. But I also don't know like what the purpose of it is. There's a scene where he and Tom Cullen like in they're in uh, Oklahoma or something and they encounter a tornado and then they take refuge in like a storm cellar and they like find a corpse of someone in the storm cellar and Tom Cullen is scared because there's a corpse, but nothing else happens to them like they survived the tornado. But we get that whole scene of them encountering a tornado and running from it. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting um, parallel sign or parallel thing that's going on, right? But Stu uh, Stu Redman gets taken to in, in this early part of the novel. He's clearly immune to the super flu, so he's brought into the CDC facility and he's taken to an even more shadowy government facility in like Vermont or something. And then at the very end, he like uh, of that arc part of the novel he escapes it and there's like a guy like in the dark below the stairs who's like uh tastes like chicken he's like eating he's like doing cannibalism or something yeah uh so i mean Un- unclear it's it's one of those i i really like that moment uh and it's in the original text too it's one of the ones that always stuck mm-hmm. with me because it's like the the thing that steve can really do uh the the i think in the shining episode with regard to the dog man you called it like just the eruption of the real uh, it's just this guy who just like comes out of the darkness and he's like, come down here and eat chicken with me. Beautiful. Right. Right. And so the, the, um, the scene in the, the tornado cellar or whatever that, that kind of parallels it. Right. Cause they're down in that, in this like darkened cellar room, that tornado is going over. It's destroying everything. Like, you know, Tom Collins freaking out and, uh, and there's a corpse down there, but then they think there's someone else down there with them. Mm-hmm. You know, they get this feeling, and Tom Collins like, someone was down there with us, right? And Nick's like, yeah, I think so. Uh, you know, so there's this, like, interesting thing going on here of the, the in the waning moments, right, of the, the, uh, the, the last order, there are these, like, shadows of figures, and is it flag, is it something else, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're there. So I think that's pretty cool, but then also it's just like, that it's like 10 page rule style, right? It's like something's got to happen with these characters. So let's do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it's not particularly exciting. Uh, Well, we can talk about, I guess uh, the material that's added with Franny. Uh, Mm -hmm. Her mother's alive. I believe in the original text, her mother is already dead. She's already out of the picture, but here she's Mm -hmm. still alive. uh, And she is extremely upset that Franny is pregnant. Yeah, this is a yeah, yeah. This is a thing that uh, Steve, in his what he says about this book, uh, th- this is one of those sort of plot subplots, and specifically like the scene where they have the discussion about Franny's pregnancy in her mother's parlor uh, that Steve was sad to cut. Why? Why, Steve? So you could have uh, Sue's mom again. You could just rewrite Sue's mother. Isn't that her name, Susan? Susan uh, from uh, Salem's Lot. Yeah, yeah, it's just it's just her mom again. Yeah, I think in the previous episode, didn't we talk about like, hey, finally, we got rid of a <laughs> like an overbearing mom with a with a with a kid. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then it just comes right back here uh, and it adds an, an another, I guess, interesting dimension to to the whole thing, because one of the defining features of Franny's mother is that she is like a a hardcore new Englander in the sense that she's like, she's got her, her like front parlor where she keeps everything just so there's also this, um, a fairly lengthy, uh, flashback subplot thing about how Franny had an older brother who, uh, died 
Um, and that was like a big tragedy. And that's kind of also impacted the way that her, her family dynamics play out. Uh, her, her mom right. kind of, you know, she basically Franny is like, you know, her, her father's favorite and her brother was her mother's favorite. And so ever since, uh, Fred, I believe is her brother's name ever since Fred died, uh, mom has not been like quite even keel. And, uh, one of the things we know about Franny's mom, in addition to that, is that she like keeps the genealogy of the family going back to the Mayflower, going back to like so and so, an apprentice in London in 1630. Uh, so when Franny says that she's pregnant and she's also like unmarried, right? This is devastating to her mother that there would be uh, a kind of uh, uh, error, right, in the fam- family genealogy, and this is not explicitly stated by her right this is like i think how you're supposed to understand the character and like why she's reacting uh to it in this way um Mm -hmm. so like that's there i guess it's kind of interesting the other thing that that does though is it adds a particularly strange resonance to the centrality of franny's child and its birth as like the herald of the new future of the post-apocalyptic united states Oh, that's interesting. I didn't really think about that. Yeah, but, well, I mean, I guess the thing that it does, right, is that it truly is a break with the, fi- like, if if uh, if Franny's mother is representative of, like, the waspy whatever, mm-hmm. right, uh, you know, the, the kind of standard American genealogical human being, mm-hmm. right? Uh, then, then the child then take and is and the child is rejected by her, mm-hmm. right? Then the child really is the opportunity for something new, mm-hmm. right? You know, it is explicitly hated by um, uh, the mother before. It, it also, like, I mean, we gotta say it, right? That's part of it too. Is that um, as soon as it is introduced, as soon as her being pregnant is introduced to this novel, she is having a child, right? There is mm-hmm. no conversation of anything else or any other outcome other than have the child. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite literally, the the uh, arc of human history is bent toward the necessity of her having a child. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like humanly impossible to do anything other than that. Uh, even though I think her mother, doesn't her mother encourage her to get an abortion? Uh, or her, maybe her dad mentions it. Someone her, mentions her, it. Her mother, I don't know what her mother does in this regard, but her father quite specifically is anti-abortion. Like we get oh, his right. whole. Oh, oh then it's her. Uh, it's her partner Jesse or whatever yes. his name is. Then okay, got it. Right. Uh, uh, we get her father's like long take on uh, uh, why he doesn't understand why people get abortions and he would rather they not. Uh, the there, there's a a strong uh, pro life undercurrent in this entire book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah. I mean, we, we're uh, that's one of the updates for the '90s. I think. Yeah. Steve's t- Steve's taking a position here, mm-hmm. um, uh, and and it was something you know we've talked about you know in terms of kind of the key term is reproductive futurism, right? Mm-hmm. But you know that's that's in the convo certainly for uh, the previous one, right? You know the idea that Franny Goldsmith is shunted out of the novel's action so that she can be the steward of the world to come, um, and by virtue of just having a child. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that does get hyper accelerated here through questions of abortion and things like that and and her father's very explicit stuff i was really on the lookout here too uh thinking about it because we saw the adaptation where like everyone's like a military bro Uh uh-huh uh and i don't think that her dad was ever in the military in this novel no doesn't seem like it the there's something oh i want to talk so steve puts his uh finger on the scale i think a little bit here uh in the beginning 
by titling book one Captain Trips. Mm-hmm. Because you know what no one calls it? Uh, Captain Trips. Yeah. The word Captain Trips is said a few times, mm-hmm. and it's certainly used quite often toward the end of the book. But in the first half of this book, people say tube net constantly. Yeah. It's a book about tube net. <laughs> like just straight up. And uh, I think that's pretty interesting to me. No, Captain Trips is so much cooler, says Steve. It's not. Tube neck is cool. <laughs> that's my new t-shirt I'm making. Tube neck is cool. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I guess. Is, is that is that all kind of the first third stuff? Uh, I think so. I'm trying to think of other, yeah, book kind of book one stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to, I'm flipping through here to see if there's anything else that I wanted to note. I really didn't note that much in the first, the first bit because uh, there are expansions here, but it, it mostly is the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in terms of of content, content. Um, yeah. Harold is stewarding Franny across the United States, meeting up, mm-hmm. doing all that kind of stuff. Uh, no, I don't. Yeah, I guess we could talk about the other part. Yeah, so we like move into the middle then, uh, where all the characters are kind of like traveling around the United States. And some of the additions, I mean, uh, there's some expansion here. Uh, and basically, it just adds more. It, it, it generically kind of like jags or shifts the novel in another way. It becomes more of a survivalist novel. For example, there's like a scene where a guy is having, I think, like some sort of appendicitis issue and they have to make a decision mm-hmm. about whether or not to uh, do some surgery on him, even though none of them are really surgeons. Uh, Stu is a part of this. And then they like attempt to do the surgery and then the guy dies anyway. And I mean, it has nearly nothing to do with any of the rest of the novel. It's just kind of like, it's more like these characters are out in the world doing things. What are some situations they might encounter? And that's one of them. Uh, I already mentioned the encounter with the tornado and and that sort of thing. Uh, There is uh, an encounter with uh, the like uh, gang of rapists uh, that I think in the cut edition is, I think I cannot remember for certain, but I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. that it's a uh, uh, totally gestured at kind of retroactively like the the group. And this is like Franny and Stu and Harold's group like they've uh, already traveled to a certain place uh, and they've been they've taken up additional survivors with them. And it's just like, you know, one of them was like Dana Jurgens or whatever. Uh, they found her along with these other women uh, being held captive by these dudes who they took out. Uh, and then we actually get that scene here in in the novel, uh, the whole sort of like thing written out. And I mean, it's it's more stuff. It's actually it's more sort of traditional, like lurid, exploitative, like post apocalypse stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Straight out of another 1970s, you know, post nuke novel mm-hmm. for sure. Especially uh, United States, uh, one released in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um Yep. Oh, the thing I do to have marked here just from the, this kind of traveling section mm-hmm. uh, is that there, there's this might be in the original, too, but it really stuck out to me uh, because this this version of the novel really makes it clear that it's not just like the white, you know, and versus the evil or, you know, whatever. Right. That it's uh, like 
autonomism versus authority mm-hmm. you know like that that really it, it seems like a like a drum that is banged on way more in the back half of the book mm-hmm. um even though definitionally flag cannot wield authority because he can't keep shit together like the the novel is quite a bit more confusing actually with all the additions that are made <laughs> um just in terms of like why does why did this even happen but uh this is on 325 so kind of well, i guess this is in the first third but um do, 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 do. there would this is uh, uh franny thinking about harold there would be other people no matter what harold said if the system of authority had temporarily broken down they would just have to find the scattered others and reform it it didn't occur to her to wonder why authority seemed to be such a necessary thing to have any more than it occurred to her to wonder why she had automatically felt responsible for harold it just was structure was a necessary thing and it's like yeah okay this like the, the this just what the thing is is like autonomist everyone east of the the um the the Rocky Mountains mm-hmm. and then authoritarians uh, everywhere west right and we were already seeing that really early in the novel mm-hmm. uh, I'm trying to think if there's anything else I have like notes here but I've kind of covered them all I guess we can talk about uh, uh this is one of the things that you said you di- didn't feel like uh kind of mm-hmm. early king that is nevertheless here uh, and we can talk about it now more extensively uh the further advent- adventures of the trash can man and the kid uh so the kid is a character who uh you know in, in reference to what you were saying about this not feeling like this was part of the original draft uh king has said that the kid was in the original draft and it's an it's like like franny's mother uh, a thing that he was sad to see go yeah, yeah, I do know that because I, I have read uh, in the interviews that I read about him talking about doing this project. He mentions the kid in those in like the mid '80s. So I know for I know that I know the kid is in it, but I I wonder mm-hmm. is this the text of the kid that's from the original novel? Because it just doesn't. I mean, maybe it's just like Future King coming out in an early way, right? right? I mean, that could be the case, and because it doesn't fit into the structure of the novel, it's an easy cut to make. But. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, also the further adventures of the trash can man, um, you know, everyone kind of uh, hammering on, well, trash can man's really great and well-developed character, um, you know, uh, in the expanded version. Not sure I agree on that one. No. <laughs> uh, I think trash can man's still just as thin as he always was. I think he's a bad character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't really like I could not for the life of me tell you what having the kid in here gets you. Like it, 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 uh, maybe makes Flag look a bit more like a badass, uh, in that, like the kid's whole thing. So if you haven't read this book, the trash can man is this, uh, his, uh, this guy from, uh, Indiana who is, uh, uh, he's got some sort of like mental illness or like intellectual disability or something. It's, it's pretty unclear. He might be, uh, say schizophrenic or something, uh, but he is also a, a fire starter. He literally like uh, uh, is like a compulsive arsonist. But he's also like in love with sort of machines, explosives, bombs, the the, me- the mechanisms of them. Uh, he starts getting called west by Randall Flagg, the evil guy. And uh, as he's kind of making his journey, he encounters this character called the Kid, who drives a like vintage hot rotted deuce coupe <laughs> like you know the the thing to remark upon in in the great run of stephen king stuff is that 
this is like Steve tilting at the the like evil greaser windmill. Probably the hardest he has. Well, the hardest he would do prior to Christine. And even then, uh, Christine is relatively down to earth compared to whatever the hell is going on with the kid uh, whose entire deal is like. He's uh, uh, very self-involved. Uh, he's he's also heading west to meet with Flag. Uh, it's kind of suggested that he, in the same way that Trash Can Man is being called out there to, uh, you know, develop bombs and weapons and recover them. Uh, the kid is ca- being called out there to, like, be a kind of fighter pilot. Like, this is kind of like one of his little fantasies, like, as he's driving his hot rod, just, like, speeding down the road and, like, z- uh, zipping around, like, uh, uh, abandoned cars and stuff. He's kind of, like, pretending it's a it's a plane. Um, mm-hmm. I've sent you an image, by the way, of what I was thinking of when the kid appeared. <laughs> yes, yes, right. It's, um, uh, oh, God, what's this guy's name? Um. I don't know. Yeah, it's like the monster hot rods. Yes, right. It's like that type, that specific type of like a uh, uh, 50s grotesque hot rod kind of thing. Um, so the kid uh, is also going to go meet Flag, but as he tells uh, the trash can man, his ultimate plan is to kill and depose Flag and then take over his empire. Uh, okay, I guess, whatever. Uh, that's that's what I do when someone appears to me in my dreams is <laughs> I'm like, I bet I could take this guy. Uh, uh, but they hang out for a while. Uh, trash can man is scared of him. He sexually assaults trash can man in an extremely weird and gross and explicit scene. Um, again, for kind of question mark reasons uh, in terms of like what this buys for the narrative. Uh, but then. When they approach, like, a choked tunnel, uh, eventually, like, Flag summons a, like, at a distance, Flag summons, like, a, a a bunch of wolves who, like, trap him in his car and then kill him and uh, let Trash Can Man go free because he's loyal. And so it becomes this kind of signal to Trash Can Man of, like, you know, this too is my power. Uh, this is This is how I protect the people who are loyal to me and this is what I do to the people who are disloyal to me. All well and good, uh, except this ultimately just doesn't really s- seem to matter once we actually get to Vegas and everything at Vegas happens. Uh, yep, and then you get Vegas. I, this is unfair to the novel, but Vegas is the most interesting part still. Yeah, it is. <laughs> like, during that last third, when you when we just, like, jump wholesale to Vegas and what's going on to Vegas... It, it's like the novel opens up its windows and like fresh air comes rushing in. <laughs> yeah, because there's this like uh, absolute paralysis around doing anything and like this, you know, indeterminacy about like what is desired, you know, by uh, this kind of numinous figure in in Colorado and in in, in Vegas. It's just like. Fuck, I don't know. There's this dude going around. He's magical. And I he's hard to deal with. And everyone's like, that's right. He is hard to deal with. Don't say his name, though. Mm-hmm. Like, there, I don't know. There's just this kind of... Um, uh, it, people want to be free there. And they are not free. And it's all of them trying to figure out how to imagine that they are actually free. Mm-hmm. And th- that makes for, within the kind of Kingian imaginary, I think it makes for a better novel. Um, I don't think Stephen King is good about writing characters who are like, 
uh, inventing things whole cloth. I think he's pretty good about inventing characters who are having to deal with rough circumstances. Mm-hmm. You know, that's and that's all Vegas is. It's all people being like, "Hey, shit, we allied with this guy who makes all of our lives terrible. Mm-hmm. Why did we do that?" All right, well, I guess here we here we live. <laughs> Yeah, like that's that's really what's interesting about Vegas, especially in this book, uh, and especially compared to what's going on in the 2020 miniseries. Again, patreon.com slash range touch if you want to hear all about the strange choices made. Uh, like it, it completely rewrites Vegas in what Vegas is mm. in in that uh, miniseries. And it does so in a way that is easier, more conventional um and is ultimately just worse and boring uh because what is interesting about vegas in the novel is is what you just said cameron it's like all of these people who find themselves compelled to ally with evil um while knowing it is evil and trying to come up with reasons why it isn't uh and in in the miniseries like they're doing things like blood sport like people are like mutilating each other in swimming pools while people look on and like cheer and everything uh and what is distinctive and notable about vegas in the novel is that it is the most boring place on earth like there's like the diners (laughs) open in the morning people get their breakfasts uh and then they go to work they like take out the the dead light bulbs in in the street lamps uh they're replacing all those things they get the schools going really quick there are children in vegas there are apparently you know like evil children being being pulled along um (laughs) but and that's the thing like that's what really um i think sells it right is that it's not like the kids are like little evil bastards it's like like everyone in Vegas like loves the kids, right? There's like one kid who everyone is like always doting on and everything. Like they are they are genuinely like human beings who just happen to live under this like authoritarian phantasmatic monster who they are all terrified of. Uh but they are committed to thinking that they have made the right decision because he is uh, flag is dedicated to getting things back to normal to what they used to look like to something recognizable uh which is you know a, a strong angle of social critique here um but then also runs up against the wall of what you said about boulder which is like in boulder no one can imagine the future there's like <laughs> we just sort of sit around and we're kind of like waiting for things to happen we'll get the power grid back up maybe yeah, we'll get the power grid back up and we'll let that guy smash all the windows. Right. Uh, which is in the original version too, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and there there is this kind of thing of uh, this kind of push and pull of like, Flag's a fascist, explicitly. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, like very, he's an authoritarian fascist and all these people are like, uh, some of them are, uh, you know, just about it. You know, some, some of them are um, cartoonishly evil. And they want that. Some want just a, a strong man, you know, in the world doing stuff. And they say that explicitly, right? He's the strongest one, so I'm going with him. Mm-hmm. You know, a couple people say that over the course of the thing. But but you're right. For the most part, it's people who want things to go back to normal. And, and the sh- social sh- critique here from King is that back to normal is bad. Mm-hmm. Like, that's insufficient. Literally every character is saying that constantly. Uh, anyone who's not in Vegas. But then the other side is, like, the most... Uh, the average human being has no uh, ability to speak to anyone else and is the weakest person on earth. Like a guy went and smashed every window down main street and no one did anything about it. Just no one stopped him. 
Uh, and he says, you know, why did no one stop me? I was drunk. Mm-hmm. Why, why did no one? And they're like, I guess we need to invent the police so someone can do this stuff. Yeah. As we all know, people never intervened in things before police existed. Right, right. Yeah, that's what, yeah, right. So it's like, what if I'm, I'm just floating to think here? What if someone had just said, hey, quit doing that <laughs> and made him stop? Um, uh, we, you know, th- there didn't need to have to be this intervening thing, which, which is this fascinating, the fascinating thing to me about it, right, is that the positionality, right, like the big broad structure here is like authoritarian getting things back to the way it was versus the new way, right? Uh, that that Boulder offers that's an opportunity to take a different run at the American project. Mm-hmm. But the different run at the American project still has to go through all of the other old ways in order to get there. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's like the only way out is through in some ways. So we need to invent like, you know, a unilateral police force. Uh, and then we need like a... a uh, a legal system, it's just one guy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't, like, why not just make the sheriff that guy? And it sounds like you've got a good system going on, right? You have to and, and, wait, hold the, on. The U.S. Constitution explicitly. Right, right, right. Like, there's all this kind of weird stuff of like the, the, ima- the, Big concept of the book is like, what if there were two ways of, of you know, reinvigorating America and one is better than the other, but they both have to do the same stuff. Just flag doesn't bother with the Constitution, but he ends up at the authoritarianism. They adopt the Constitution, but they weirdly end up doing the same kind of power moves. <laughs> yeah, they have. They have a secret government. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like, let's <laughs> adopt the Constitution and then also rig the election. <laughs> Right. I mean, they like founding fathers it up, you know, and I don't know. The book is not interested in like thinking through those issues. Right. And that is ultimately, I think, why libertarian exit happens at the end. Right. Where it's just like, ah, whatever, we'll just leave. Mm -hmm. Let let these nerds figure it out. Um, You know, the good people will go back to rural Maine. (laughs) Um, But so it all kind of falls apart there, too. Um, oh, speaking of things falling apart, sorry, just go back to Trash Can Man. The the interesting thing about Trash Can Man to me is that in the original book, we noted that he's just this kind of like staccato force that shows up occasionally uh, and then is like plot critical at the end, you mm-hmm. know, uh, with this whole kind of Vegas thing. And what's even wilder about the extended edition is like you get this long section set of sections about him that are like watching someone hit a puppy with a stick. Right. I mean, that that is the emotional effect here. Right. It's like. Trash Can Man is an abused human being mm-hmm. uh, who has been victimized by the American, uh, you know, mental health establishment and also just the social um, systems that we have. And he has been abused historically. And then he gets picked up by another guy who sexually abuses him and does all this kind of stuff to him and is threatening him, going to shoot him, all this kind of stuff. Right. It's it's just what it's just the most piteous thing that you could see. It's awful. Mm hmm. Then he disappears for a very long time, and then he comes back up staccato like, and then ends the novel. It's it's quite odd that like there's no the for all the additions that happen, there's there's no um, uh, threading that happens here toward the end. And weirdly enough, there's not any more threading that happens on the Colorado side either. I would say yeah. it's the same structural ending with very little additional information mm-hmm. or like content. Yeah, it it is it is notable how uh, the kind of updates or expansions or you know re-editions or whatever uh by the end of the book they're just gone yeah yeah uh oh uh, uh, uh on that topic though i have to talk about this because it's just so goddamn weird um uh my sidebar here uh Stu redmond tells franny this like long anecdote about a time that he thinks he met jim morrison 
<laughs> who was dead already. Yes. Uh, and it yeah. comes very soon after Trash Can Man meeting the kid. And the car that Jim Morrison is driving is described very similarly to the car that the kid is driving. And also, I believe Jim Morrison says he's going to Louisiana, which is mm -hmm. where the kid was coming from. I remember reading this when I was, again, like 13 or whatever, and trying, like, uh, uh, you know, before the Jim Morrison drop happens, because the way Stu tells this, right, is he's like, it's like a slow escalation of like, oh, I think I'm supposed to know you, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, how on earth would Stu Redman know the kid? Because all of the signs around this encounter, it's like he's working a, a gas station pump late one night. Mm -hmm. um, all of the signs around this encounter because of things you've just read in the book have this anomalous like quality of like suggesting Stu Redman somehow met the kid and we're going to learn like important information about the kid. And no, it just turns out that it's a completely different person. It's Jim Morrison thinks Stu. And then I, I don't even remember why Stu tells this to Franny. It's like so out of left field. I, I, I don't know. It, that truly also uh, blew my mind. Because I was just like, why? Why is this occurring? Uh, in a in a general sense, and uh, I have no idea. I don't know what. I don't even know what the significance of it is. Right. Well, I think I think if I'm remembering correctly, Stu is maybe trying to communicate something to Franny about like uh, uh, you know the anomalous nature of the world and reality and stuff. Um, which maybe you need to do after, you know, the God dreams and the, the world ending plague. Maybe that's a thing people need to be convinced about still, but. <laughs> yeah, they all had dreams that brought them to a magical God figure. You know, and, and let's let's talk about that, too. Let's talk about Mother Abigail. Okay. Weirdly okay, enough, yeah, we also should. not expanded. I feel like we get more flag. In this version. Maybe we don't, but it feels that way. Hmm. Structurally. Yes, we do. Oh, ah, we do. We do. We get more flag. Um, I'm glad you reminded me of that, because otherwise I would have forgotten this. Uh, well, we can talk about Mother Abigail first. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, we just get the same stuff, and we get, you know, this extensive set of POV things from her um, that that are in the original novel, and they're, they're really cool. And then as soon as we leave Hemingford home, that's done. Like we, I don't think we return to her like POV ever again, do we? Uh, oh no, we do when she's deciding to leave. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, to yeah. do her like journey into the wilderness, and that that's it. Um, but it, it's just kind of weird. It's she's like a full by that point at the midpoint of the novel, because that's like right there somewhere. She, I would say, is as much of a character as Nick Andros is, you know, in terms of, like, the amount of POV stuff we've gotten, even even though that Nick Andros gets that really great kind of novella at the beginning. Uh, but, you know, we get one with her. We get, like, 50 solid pages of her just doing stuff. And then it's just gone. Like, yep. uh, we just don't get as much of her journey. As opposed to Flag, who we get lots of stuff around his, like... <laughs> emotional logical journey you know kind yeah. of flying through the world um and doing stuff at the end it, it's uh, i was not quite prepared for it but mm -hmm. but what what did we add around uh flag uh so the, the big thing for me uh that is notable is uh we get this early scene uh like in the first third when the world is starting to go to hell uh and flag we get it's from the perspective of this other guy but flag visits this guy who is dying of uh captain trips uh and this guy i can't remember his name it's a uh, kit something um 
Uh, but he was like, he's like a, a <laughs> what I said to you actually is like the thing that's very funny is uh, this is like the first run at Jim Gardner uh, from the Tommy Knockers because he's mm-hmm, like this mm-hmm. 60s radical poet who uh, has kind of been um, co-opted by the academic establishment. Uh, but also he is like secretly and has been since the 60s uh been like aiding and abetting uh like political terrorists essentially and this is how he's come to know Randall Flagg because uh you, you know Randall Flagg is like this fascist authoritarian and how he accomplishes his goals is he acts like a hippie and and backs up all the radical hippies you know yeah it's, it's Stephen King's uh metaphysical horseshoe theory that right. in in secret uh, and, and, you know, the, I'm pretty sure that section of describing flag about all the things he's done and all the places he's been, that's in the original book, right? Yes, it is. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, basically Randall flag was at ground zero for every leftist movement, uh, you know, uh, in the 1960s, uh, and it's explicitly, you know, whether it's a Stephen King or not, who knows, right? But the narratorial device, you know, the structure that's going on here that's like, doling out information to us is asserting that all of those people, all of those kind of broad lefty kind of movements, you know, the ones that went good, the ones that went bad, whatever, that at their heart, Randall Flagg was there. And mm-hmm. if if we follow that through to its logical conclusion, as is produced for us in the novel, right, at the heart of those things is Randall Flagg's authoritarianism, his chaotic authoritarianism that ultimately cannot produce, you know, uh, anything good in the world and is aligned mm-hmm. with evil forces beyond kin. Um, and, uh, it's depressing. Um, it is, you know, it's just like, well, it truly is like metaphysical horseshoe theory. Um, mm-hmm. and pitted against that are like the coolest libertarians on earth. Um, <sighs> and I don't think Stephen King thinks that way now, thankfully, but certainly that is the structure of the stand and, uh, it's not, not a bummer, but you're right. You know, uh, we get this whole little section with, uh, this guy, uh, go, go ahead. Oh. Sorry. I interrupted oh, you. sorry. There's like one more detail just based on everything you were saying. Did you notice this, uh, a uh, tiny little move where Steve seems to be trying to get around the, um, I think a quibble that we raised back in the original edition where uh flag is constantly referred to as the dark man. And so when uh, there's the, there's this like very throw, like quick throwaway line that uh, posits that whenever Randall flag was working with like black radical movements, people saw him as, as black. Yes. Yes. Yep. That he, that he is like, um, uh, I guess there's two ways to read it. Two ways to read it. On one, on one hand, uh, perhaps he is, um, has some sort of physical ability to do that, you know, mm-hmm. or like a magical ability to do that. On the other hand, perhaps he is, um, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, he's passing, you know, that's another mm-hmm. way to read the thing. I don't know, but yes, it, it also seems to be a little bit of a poke of like, uh, Stephen King saying that some people are pretending, uh, mm-hmm. did, did you get that? You know, like that some people are like taking on ethnic identities that they don't have. And in reality, they're all just Randall flags. Uh, I didn't quite get that, but I could see it. I, I mean, I that that's kind of how I read it. It's like, oh, if some people are pretending to be an oppressed ethnic group, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess, I mean, that does happen in the world, right? There are very famous cases of, of people pretending to be part of an ethnic group they're not in order to uh, garner some social benefits, particularly associated with academia, uh, without getting mm-hmm. into it too much. But that is the thing that occurs. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, but yeah, we get this kind of initial run at, at guard. I did like that. Uh, yeah, that he's, he's the passport guy or something, the ID guy. Yeah. 
Yeah, he provides uh, uh, shelter to people. He gets them passage. He'll provide like fake IDs and stuff. His name is Kit. Um, and also uh, quite uh, notably, he is gay. Um, and it is uh, the moment we meet him, he is already dying, right? He's already dying of Captain Trips. So his uh, we're in his perspective, in his point of view. And it's all pretty disjointed uh, already because he's kind of like zipping back and forth from like lying on his own deathbed to like being uh, outside uh, uh, the DNC in in 68 or whatever uh, to like all these other things that he's done. And it's all just kind of like ping ponging around in his head. Uh, But he it is strongly suggested that he meets Randall Flagg and falls in love with him. And they were like maybe lovers at one point. Um and this is notable to me because, again, reading this for the first time when I'm like 12 or 13, uh, this like blew my mind because it is the first instance I can ever remember of reading uh, like male same sex desire like described in in a book. Uh, it's like he sees Randall Flagg and Randall Flagg. I think this is Randall Flagg. Again, it's like very, very vague. Uh, but the the setup suggests that it is he sees randall flag like wearing like a yellow uh a speedo or something and it calls him like the most beautiful boy in the world uh and i just remember like as a you know a, a closeted queer kid like this like overturned the world for me like it had literally never occurred to me that you could like write down these feelings oh um, <laughs> i thought you were gonna be like i just never uh, it never occurred to me I, that a man could wear a yellow shirt and be very hot <laughs> yeah no it never uh no it was it was this like i remember like having this like moment of panic of like oh oh shit like these are these are things that can be written down these are these are feelings that pe- that can be expressed to other people um and then of course this is ch- this has the the wonderful chaser of the character one uh, being presented as a dupe on the side of evil, whether or not he believes it, and uh, being harassed by Randall Flagg until he dies. The uh, right because uh, immediately Randall Flagg turns into a little goofy goblin and and hoots and hollers at this man until he is dead. Yeah, like he it, it, this is this is like Randall Flagg at his most Bugs Bunny-ish. In fact, he's a little Beetlejuice, right? He comes <laughs> he like is, he, he comes like running down the hall and he's like, "Wahoo!" <laughs> it's such an odd I don't know thing here, but this is what I, I did I sent you this message last night, but uh the complete edition of Randall Flagg in my mind, it, he's just the heat miser from that like <laughs> that claymation or not claymation, but like stop motion animation animated cartoon. Like wah, wah! <laughs> like doing wild shit. Yeah. Uh he's just that little guy to me. But yeah, I, I thought that was uh I liked the this little intro of these guys. And also that Randall Flagg's like, I gotta go meet that guy. And I was like, wow, there's gonna be like a whole new character in this. And nope, I mean he's there for one scene, but mm-hmm. we, we get foreshadowing to, to Flag meeting this fella, and then mm-hmm. he's in the in the thing for one scene. Um try, uh, I don't I don't know what else we need to say. Uh, the basic plot of the novel happens the way it normally happens, right? So Nadine Cross, who is as underwritten as she is in the original, gets to Boulder uh, alongside Harold Lauder, who also gets to Boulder. They are both implicitly, they have both implicitly decided to join Flag, and they have these kind of um, moments where they could make a choice to not go to Flag, you know. So mm-hmm. Harold has this opportunity to be a kind of a part of the social system 
of Boulder uh, and to be kind of brought into the fold. And he can't let go of the fact that he felt betrayed by uh, Franny, excuse me, Franny. Uh, And uh, and so, you know, he's committed to uh, basically killing people and then leaving. Um, And he has several opportunities where, you know, he's Hawk now. You know, he's got this Mm -hmm. like nickname. Uh, People like him. Uh, he's got some buddies, and but but he just kind of can't get over it. He can't let go of the past. He can't let go of the time before, which is again that's the the Randall Flag thing, right? Like mm-hmm. Randall Flag is attractive to the people who cannot let go of the time before. Uh, weirdly enough, that's not really what happens with Nadine, and that makes her kind of even more flat and kind of worse as a character in terms of like how I'm supposed to interact with her or think through her, right? Like she doesn't have that kind of thing she can't let go of. She just has mm-hmm. destiny, right? Like right. And in, in the mm-hmm. adaptation of um uh, the most recent adaptation that we talked about in the bonus episode, it, at least they do something there. And I don't think it works, right? But at least they do something there that gives her like a uh, a desire to be powerful. You know, she's minimized and unpowerful and has always been unpowerful and flag offers her an opportunity, right? She's going to be a queen. Um mm-hmm. and that gets played into a little bit there, but that's not even present in the in the novel. Literally, she's just destined to do it and is doing whatever Flag tells her to, mostly out of fear. Um, she doesn't seem to be able to understand, and I think this is written as a weakness in her character, right? Like, this is King not really thinking through the implications of her other actions enough. She's written it, it to be, like, almost childishly naive. She thinks that Randall Flagg can kill her at any given moment. Um, mm-hmm. when, when that's not, I mean, you know, there are just so many clear instances of that not being true that it feels like Nadine as a character should be able to read the room in some ways, but, but she's written in such a way that she just can't get there. She's childlike in that way. And so her fear ultimately drives her that way. Uh, there's all this kind of committee stuff and all this kind of stuff around all the other characters trying to manage Boulder. They all meet and then Harold blows them up in a bombing again, very 1960s. I, I, you know what I mean? There's, there's a kind of, uh, King throwing back flags methods or are all these methods of of uh, you know the the domestic bombings of lots of different persuasion in the sixties uh, and uh, the uh, so and then they go to Vegas and then the novel ends in the same way uh, you know the the back bit the uh, the crew from Boulder decides to start walking to Vegas because Mother Abigail tells them to on this kind of discussion from God. I was kind of paying attention in this reading to determine, like, is there more God talk in this, or is it still a little bit more nebulous than it's uh, Mother Abigail's interpretation? I do think some of the other characters are a little bit more kind of traditional Christian here in a way that I don't think that they were in the original, but it still is mostly Mother Abigail's interpretation that that reigns mm-hmm. heavy uh, over the rest of the characters. But they go to Vegas, they get captured in the same way, we get the same things that happened with the Judge and Dana Jurgens and Tom Cullen, all those things are exactly the same. So if you've listened to that episode, there's not really a reason for us to go through it again, and if you want to hear more about it, just listen to our other episode on The Stand, if you haven't already. Um, uh, Trash Can Man is out in the desert, um, finds a nuclear weapon, begins, a nuclear warhead, begins bringing it to Vegas, uh, after he has, um, sabotaged all of the military equipment due to mm-hmm. basically being triggered. I mean, to use the contemporary language, right? He has an emotional and mental response that he can't really control or react to where someone makes fun of him. Um, and so he rigs every helicopter and airplane uh, in 
the Air Force base that they're using to kind of prep to go bomb Boulder in the spring. Uh, I think he, it's Nellis. Oh, it, is it? The yeah, Vegas yeah, connection. Yeah, it is. It is Nellis Air Force Base, I think. So uh, he blows all those up and he kills every pilot that they had and, and were training um, on mm-hmm. accident. Or uh, he doesn't intend to do it, but he does do it. And so uh, Randall Flagg's operation is kind of the, the plan of getting some uh, planes up in the air and then bombing Boulder is impossible. Um, mm-hmm. So that's one little way that that it begins falling apart. Nadine Cross gets there after killing Harold, getting rid of Harold. Nadine Cross gets there. She's impregnated by Flag. Um, uh, again, in a horrifying scene, uh, goes back to Vegas and then convinces him to kill her again. You know, same stuff here. Mm-hmm. Um, so everything in Vegas is kind of falling apart. The crew from Boulder eventually make their way there, even though Stu Redmond breaks his leg and isn't able to make it all the way there. They get there, Trash Man shows up with a nuclear warhead, the hand of God reaches down and blows it up, and it kills everyone in Las Vegas. The end. Stu Redman uh, is found by Tom Cullen, who is, Tom Cullen is coming back from his spying mission that is in Las Vegas. He finds Stu Redmond. The dog is there, too. There is a 40-page novel about them traveling overland back to mm-hmm. Boulder, Colorado. They get back to Boulder. The baby is born. The baby is maybe a little bit sick, and it's not sick. They leave and go to Maine. And then we never find out what happens to the rest of the people in Boulder. That's the novel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Except for mm-hmm. one final scene. Dun, 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 dun. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, after uh, uh, Franny and Stu, we leave off their story in the same place that we did in the original text where um, I can't remember who asks who, but it's like, you know, they're they're solemnly reflecting on uh the rise and fall of civilizations or whatever. And one of them asks the other, are people ever going to learn? And then the other person responds, I don't know. And that's where, that's where the original text left off. Uh, and in case we, you know, didn't get the, the resonance there, the expanded text adds an additional scene where flag who, uh, did not actually get exploded because before the bomb goes off, when the hand of God is coming down, he like evaporates uh, from away, some one of the characters sees it. I don't remember if it's uh, uh, Larry. I think it, actually, I think it's Larry. Anyway, flag evaporates. It turns out uh, he, when he evaporated, he also reappeared on a uh, beach somewhere uh, with near a, a quote unquote un- uncontacted tribe, and uh, he proceeds to terrorize them into worshiping him as a god. Yeah. Well, you know that that's interesting to me. I mean, because yes, that's what happened. He also comes out of the the like the surf shirtless, but wearing jeans and uh, uh-huh. and boots, which is very funny to me. Uh, what's interesting about this, though, is you know that 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 what you just said is exactly how the um, um the recent miniseries ends, and mm-hmm. I think he yells, doesn't he yell, "Worship me"? Yes. So this is this is even more on the nose in some ways, but actually it's thematically at least fits, you know, with the rest of the thing. Um, hold on, let me get there. He says, uh, "Yes." He advanced toward them, lineless palms still turned outward, still smiling. His eyes sparked with a warm and lunatic joy. My name is Russell Faraday, he said in a slow, clear voice. I have a mission. They stared at him, all eyes, all dismay, all fascination. I have come to help you. 
They began to drop on their knees and bow their heads before him, and as his dark, dark shadow fell among them, his grin widened. I've come to teach you how to be civilized. Mm-hmm. Like, that, that at least is, you know, right. them- thematically a part of the rest of the novel. Right. And I don't think he says anything about civilizing people in the, the, the most, uh, most recent adaptation. No, he hates civilization in the most recent one. He that's, complains oh, about that's it. that's right. That's right. He does. The civilization made you not, not uh, root for blood sports. Yeah, it made you uh, not horny. Yeah. Hey, let me tell you this, though. Life was such a wheel that no man could stand upon it for long. Damn. Thank you, Steve, for reusing the Wheel of Fortune medieval commonplace. Mm-hmm. But did you know that Ka is like a wheel? Did you know about I that? I didn't. Yeah. I just, I'm hearing that for the first time right here on air. Yeah, Ka is like a wheel. Mm. Oh, the AIDS crisis also shows up here. Oh, yes, it does. Yeah. Uh, Captain Trips gets explicitly likened to uh, the way that, that AIDS works uh, mm-hmm. as, a, as a kind of adaptive condition uh or hiv not aids um but uh the uh yeah that's uh, that's the book yep um, it's not as good if you're gonna no. re- i i really strongly believe that if you want to read the best version of the stand it's actually not the complete and uncut edition it's it's worth trying to dig up the uh the original i think it it sustains itself more there are still some pacing problems and issues like that but they are lessened just to be honest with you and it actually feels like the characters are a little bit more equal footing with one another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I am so excited to never read this book again. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I Unfortunately, I have to report to you that um, Stephen King did write parts of the adaptation so, uh, for the comic book. So. Uh-huh. I think about 2014, we're going to have to take another swing at the old stand. You know what? Actually, I'm, I'm uh, obviously I'm joking, but uh, just to totally be honest with you, I think that might be the way to read this. I haven't read the stand comic books, but that might be the best <laughs> version of the stand. I, I wouldn't know. I'm just I just I'm just asserting that. Uh, like if, if you ask me, would you rather sit and read this doorstop or would you rather read a comic book that communicates a lot of this information? might want to read the comic book but actually just to be really like big spectrum if you want the ideas of the stand where should you get them it's the mick garris miniseries Mm -hmm. like that is kind of the best version of the story as it is told you know in in all adaptive media as far as i'm aware i liked it a lot yeah i i think it's good yeah uh Uh, yeah it, it can't go quite as uh wide as the complete and uncut text sometimes does but uh it's no great loss. It's no great loss. Oh, you know, uh, the the other thing I want to say about the complete and uncut, let me say a positive thing about it. Um, there's a lot more Ralph Brentner, and it's good stuff. Yeah, Ralph Brentner is still a character who is, like, definitionally the other guy. <laughs> yes. Uh, but he's a more, he's a more uh, <laughs> uh, contoured or interesting other guy in this version. Yeah, and there's a lot more, what's her name, Lucy? Is that her name? Yeah, Lucy Swan. Yeah, there's a lot more her, too. She's good. I like her a lot. There's a lot more Larry's emotional troubles. I know you brought that up before, but there's a lot more like Larry trying to figure out which woman he's going to be with, which is, you know, kind of pat in a general sense. There's not a lot of surprises in that narrative, but we get a lot of like development there. I like a lot of the character moves that are made in the expanded edition. I don't really like any of the plot that is added. Maybe that's the best mm-hmm. way of uh, way of putting mm-hmm. it. Um 
that's my version of this. We like cut out all the every single thing that like moves the plot forward, and uh, just keep everything that is just like wheel spinning inside of someone's head specifically. Not committee meetings, but like right. just people's thoughts. I'll keep those because those are pretty good. <laughs> Franny's expanded diary. Right. Uh, all right. Well, you want to do some segments then? Let's do some segments. Okay. Uh, my favorite kingism is the segment where uh, we pick something from the thing that we just read, a word, a phrase, a sentence, an idea, an image, uh, a page, a scene that is somehow indelibly kingian. Uh, and so for me, I've already referenced it multiple times, but, uh, the, the King thing here that really resonates with me is no great loss as this, uh, the way people refer to that chapter, that is this kind of like mosaic of different people around, uh, the country who were immune to the superflu, nevertheless dying. It's, uh, constantly being tied back to, um, actually the woman, I believe who has the gun explode in her hand. I think it's something like her mother or her father used to say. Uh, and it, it becomes this kind of refrain for those characters. In fact, it is, it, I think it has a very powerful impact upon first reading, uh, because I remembered it being used much more than it actually is. Mm -hmm. Same. Mm -hmm. The, uh, I think mine is probably, uh, this is not like one direct thing, uh, but everything that's basically added with Joe, mm -hmm. Joe's like a haunted little kid. Yeah. And uh, I we didn't really talk about him in the mainline episode because there's really not much to say. He's the same character as before. His name is actually his name's Leo. His name's not Joe. Uh, but, you know, he's kind of torn between his like two mothers and mm -hmm. is being ripped back and forth. But there's a scene. I don't have the page number right in front of me, but there's a scene where he like kind of like Tom Cullen, like gets lasered up into the numinous or whatever and just starts like mm -hmm. speaking psychic truths. And it's uh -huh. very much, you know, like one of King's like possessed characters. You know, they just start saying things that are like ominous and horrifying about. And and, and uh, Joe slash Leo starts talking about Randall Flag and like Mother Abigail and stuff, and giving mm -hmm. like big plot plot, uh, you know, ghosty shit. And I like that. I thought that was really good. Mm -hmm. What in the Kingiverse is the segment where we run through uh, connections between what we just read and other books in the Stephen King world continuity. Uh, these might be, you know, sort of echoes or references, but uh, as we move into the 90s, these are becoming uh, explicitly like uh, sort of multiversal continuity connections, such as... Uh, I don't know if you maybe noticed more, Cameron, but there are references in this book to the Tommyknockers. At one point, uh, Franny reads a Bobby Anderson Western. Hmm. Um, uh, there are one or two references to the town of Castle Rock. Uh, as I already said, there's a, a long uh, uh, sort of exegesis on the essentially psychic character of the human being delivered by Glenn Bateman, which is... Uh, not exactly something that happens in all Stephen King novels, but appears to be a kind of uh, premise or like thought that undergirds a lot of the ways that Stephen King constructs plots and characters. Um, and then the whole thing with Flag uh, kind of explicitly now being this uh, being who can, well, he, he's already been this sort of like magical, timeless kind of being who is is chaotic and has no stable identity or subjectivity he was like that originally but now we also get explicit confirmation that he is um 
cyclical or can be reborn, right? He can uh, explicitly here be defeated in one sense, but like pop up in another place to like have his his try again, uh, which resumes some of the speculation that I'm sure has been running through the fandom. Actually, not even I'm sure like I, I said that as if I don't know, as if I didn't read like three years of Castle Rock newsletters <laughs> where this came up like multiple times. Um, uh, some sort of connection between uh, the character Flag in Eyes of the Dragon and Randall Flag here, right? Mm-hmm. That there is uh, uh, there might be some sort of entity or force that is showing up across these multiple worlds or multiple time streams that are becoming increasingly prevalent in, mm-hmm. in King's work. And that flag does the same thing at the end, right? I mean, he doesn't teleport, I don't think, as far as I remember. But, you know, he, at the moment of divine uh, retribution, right, is able to weasel out and disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember him teleporting, but he might have. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I didn't write, really. It was the psychic thing that that I noticed uh, the most here. Although you saying all this um, uh, makes me think this question. I think this is probably a question to pose to the listeners. You can uh, at ranged touch on Twitter, or you can uh, to answer this question, or you can leave it as a Patreon comment, or you can put it in the Discord. Any of those are easy ways to tell me to answer this question. And Michael, I don't want you to answer yet. I want to what to to feel it. You know, from the uh, from the community. Uh, did Pennywise get tube neck? So I answer that question, and then mm-hmm. uh, and then and, and uh, I'm curious what you think, mm-hmm. audience. Just yes or no is sufficient. We got a uh, we got another segment here, Michael. Uh, what a segment it is, Uncle it, Stevie's mixtape. Yeah, we're gonna have to blow through these. I don't remember any of my ratings for these songs from the previous episode. Nope, me either. And I did not bother to go back and listen uh, because I think that's going to be a more interesting experience for you, dear listener. Right. And so the uh, the the truth of the thing is that I, I this morning before we recorded, I sat down and I listened to all these songs that I was assigned. And this is just my feeling this mo- this morning. Like no mm-hmm. no more, no less. That's just how I feel. That's how ratings work. It's how opinions work, y'all. So please do not attempt to bludgeon me with uh, unequal opinions. Although there will be something magical if I get it exactly right. Um, and so I, I opened up to that. Uncle Steven's mixtape is just where we talk about all the no- all the songs that show up, and we rate them between one five stars, uh, and uh, or actually perhaps between half a star and five stars. And uh, we're going to start with me. That's with Jungle Land by Bruce Springsteen. That's three stars. It's it's by far um, it's not a good song on that record. That's such a great record, and this is like the medium of it. So three stars. Uh, don't fear the reaper. Blow oyster. Blow 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 oyster wig. Blow oyster. Blow oyster cult. The, the blow you oyster got... cult. Hey, hello, governor. <laughs> you got the blow oysters. Uh, this is five stars. A plus. Yeah, fish cheer by Country Joe and the Fish. This is terrible. It's terrible. I can't tell you how terrible. It's one star. It's awful. Mm-hmm. Uh, Boogie Fever by The Silvers, three stars. Simple Twist of Fate by Bob Dylan, one star. And I'll have you know I actually listened to it. Just, <laughs> I hate this jangly shit, y'all. It's awful to me. I just don't understand. Mm-hmm. Give someone else the guitar, Bob. <laughs> Let someone else do it for a change. Peggy Sue Got Married, Buddy Holly, one star. Wow. Softly As I Leave You, Frank Sinatra, three stars. I, I don't know if there's a Frank Sinatra song that's less than three stars. Just period. Uh, Moon River by Andy Williams, two stars. Yellow Bird by the Mills Brothers, two stars. It Have you heard this song, Yellow Bird? 
No, I haven't. You don't need to listen to it. But it's like this guy's looking at a like a guy the the POV of the song. Guy looking at a bird flying around and going, "I wish I was that bird." <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's weird. Uh, Hang on, Sloopy by the McCoys. Uh, half star. Uh, hateful Ohio song. Wow. Wasted on the way by Crosby Stills and Nash. This is two stars. Uh, I'm I I can only hold it down for Crosby Stills, Nash and Young. And uh, this is kind of I would say not a very good just track. Uh, disappointing. Okay. Uh, My Father's House by Bruce Springsteen. Three stars. Okay. Sweet by and by by Willie Nelson. Two stars. Uh, Nowhere to Run by Martha and the Vandellas, four stars. So this was where I was reading the the thing, and we're only like a quarter of the way through this list, and I was like, now we're getting into it. Because I was looking at the songs that you were having to do, and I was like, this is where it's at. Okay, mm-hmm. so I got Material Girl by Madonna, five stars. Like mm-hmm. what? Like a, an absolute banger, even now, today. Mm-hmm. It is. Speaking of bangers, uh, Who Made Who by ACDC, also five stars. You, this is like insider trading for Stephen King. I know. It's so, <laughs> I like lost my mind because it's uh, Franny is on the phone with her dad and he says something that sounds sort of like the line, Who Made Who? And so she quotes the song at him. <laughs> and her dad is like, What are you talking about? And she's like, Nothing. It's a song. And it's like, It's Steve's song. It was for, it was for Steve's movie. That's Franny. great. I, I, I think I've forgotten to mention it, but I learned how to play Who Made Who on the guitar. Um, oh boy! I got "Keep on the Sunny Side" by the Carter family. I don't know what Jimmy Carter was doing. I don't know why he decided <laughs> to record this song. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rosalind, I mean, got a great voice, but uh, you know, uh, maybe that family should stick to Billy Beer. You know what I'm saying? One star. Mm-hmm. Uh, the old rugged cross by Elvis Presley. One star. Holy crap! Does this suck? He's white. That's all I know about that Elvis movie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, uh, nobody but me by the human beings. Two stars. Everyone's heard the song. I didn't know who made that. Yeah, uh, but I love this song. I, you know, I don't hate it, but it's. It, I think it's. It suffers from you know the fact that it's in every commercial. Yes. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I think that if I were just hearing this and if I could separate it from my phenomenal experience, that if I could bracket bracketed away from the reality of life, four stars. But within the reality of life, unfortunately, two stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, double shot by the Swingin' Medallions. Uh, this is four stars. This is like a beach rock track that I've never heard before, and it was pretty cool. Cool. I'll be a sunbeam by Jimmy Boyd. So I I was listening to these kind of fast and a whack, and I could not find the Jimmy Boyd version. So I listened to a version on uh, one of the many platforms, uh, uh, the Devil's platforms, but this time the Devil's platform with uh, uh, for music, and I found one that is recorded by a group called Dream Baby. <laughs> <laughs> and it's for babies to listen to and uh let me tell you it's for babies to listen to two stars uh subterranean homesick blues by bob dylan uh one star absolutely sweet marie by bob dylan one star uh big road blues by david evans three stars jesus won't you come by here by paul oscar one star is not not very good mm-hmm Rocky Mountain High by John Denver, two stars. Now, it was at this moment, at, at point AA, or number AA, is the song, what, 25? Uh-huh. That I thought, Michael is or doing something. 27. 20, oh, are there 26 letters of the alphabet? 
Yeah, I believe so. I, I need to go to consult right. my English degree, but uh, yeah. to really make sure. But I've never been. I mean, 24 frames per second. I can tell you that, you know, <laughs> but you start asking me about how, what, how many letters are in the alphabet. That's a number and letters. Are you kidding me? Uh, but uh, this is when I thought Michael's doing something to me. Michael has made a choice to ruin my life because I got American Tune by Paul Simon after a mini Bob Dylan songs I had to listen to. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what are you doing? And I confronted you about it. You said, I didn't do it on purpose. You say you're blameless in this. Mm-hmm. But that's what all those people that were hanging out with Randall Flagg would say, too. <laughs> and they were crucifying people, Michael. I, yeah. Mm. One star. We'll continue <laughs> with your own torture here. Okay. Well, that's one star. Okay. Uh, Back in the USA by Chuck Berry, three stars. Rocking Pneumonia in the Boogie Woogie Flu by Huey Piano Smith, five stars. This song fucking rocks. Mm-hmm. I think either one of us must have had this in the previous one, and if you had it, I didn't listen to it. And if I had it, I was wrong. If I rated it <laughs> anything less than five stars, this thing is rad. Uh, it's very good. Listen to it. Listen to Rocking mm-hmm. Pneumonia and the Boogie Woogie Flu. Mm-hmm. Uh, Eve of Destruction by Barry Maguire, three stars. People Gotta Be Free by The Rascals, four stars. Great song. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daydream by The Love and Spoonful, four stars. Uh, Shake, Rattle, and Roll by Bill Haley and his Comets, five stars. This, you know, this is a standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, Highway to Hell by ACDC, five stars. This looks like six stars. I'm looking oh, at the, okay. I'm looking at the document. I There's gave, six stars here. I I gave it six stars. Yeah, sure. It looked so. I didn't ask you about this beforehand, but you just wrote Credence Clearwater Revival, the band. Oh, yeah, I forgot no to write song. down the song name. I don't remember which one it is. It might be Run Through the Jungle. Again so I evaluated Credence. CCR is a band. Uh, three stars. <laughs> They're good. You got some good stuff, uh, some bad stuff. Three stars. Uh, Sam Stone by John Prine. Uh, three stars. I, I can't. Uh, normally, I would not uh, fiddle with someone else's score. Mm-hmm. Three stars for Sam Stone. Okay, fine. Four. Three stars for Sam Stone. John Prine is the, the great American song. Like, I, you know, I was thinking about this. I'm glad I have an opportunity here at the end of this episode, nearing the two-hour mark, where I can really get on get on a, a high horse about it, get on a soapbox about it. Mm-hmm. Everyone who is holding it down for Bob Dylan, you should feel that way about John Prine. That's true. He's better in every way. I listen to John Prine songs, I'm not exaggerating, every day. I'm hearing some John Prine song. He's that good. Okay? So Mm -hmm. take that. If you listen to Bob Dylan and you think, why does he have this opinion about Bob Dylan, blah, 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 when there's this other guy who's basically a Bob Dylan cover artist for several albums and then blossoms into his own, listen to John Prine. I'm banging Mm -hmm. on the desk right now. I'm standing up. I'm standing up and yelling. (laughs) (laughs) Downtown Blues by Jeff Moldar. Uh, Three stars. It's fine. Uh, That's All Right Mama by Arthur Big Boy Crudup, uh, three stars. Jim Dandy by Black Oak, Arkansas, two stars. 20 Flight Rock, Eddie Cochran, five stars. He's got to go up those stairs to fuck, dude. Yeah. That's what does. it's about. He's got to get up those stairs. He he he's he has got to go up all those stairs, and by the time he gets there, he's too tired to rock. Yeah. I also <laughs> probably listen to Eddie Cochran every day, too. <laughs> This is like the sixth time I think we've had to listen to this song for this show. I'm never mad about it. I like I I was so wrong initially when I dismissed 20 Flight Rock. I I you know I'm I'm going to be eating crow on that forever. Endless Sleep by Jody Reynolds one star. Hmm. Uh Nadine by Chuck Berry three stars. 
when Johnny comes marching home, this is an American military standard. Uh, and it all talks about how we're going to be gay when Johnny comes home, which really <laughs> listens different in 2022 uh, than it probably did when it was originally written. Uh, but uh, one star. I just I don't want to listen to it ever. But, it, uh-huh. you know, it, it's ripe for uh, a reappropriation by the right by the right crew. I'll tell you that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Goober Peas by. Well, uh, this is also like a, a sort of military standard, particularly it's a Confederate military standard. Really? Uh it is, uh, at least according to what I have read. Uh, two stars, I guess. This is this is pretty upbeat for a song about uh, losing a war so bad that you're starving to death and have nothing to eat but uh, uh, peanuts. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I I was uh, I I'm looking here for when Johnny comes marching home to see if it is because you know Johnny Reb as mm-hmm. a as a turn, but it, this this doesn't seem like it was a. Uh, specifically a Confederate one, but that's interesting. There's also an alternate version called Johnny Fill Up the Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, I guess, I don't know. Uh, maybe also uh, ripe for reappropriation by the right group. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Digging My Potatoes by Big Bill Brunzi. This thing's rad. You know, this is just like Delta Blues style stuff mm-hmm. about digging potatoes. It's rad. And digging potatoes is a metaphor. Uh-huh. <laughs> Someone's digging my potatoes. Uh-huh. Uh, pretty pretty rad. Good song. Four stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rock of Ages by Def Leppard. Three stars. Down to the Nightclub by Tower of Power. So I sat and listened to the whole thing as we listened to on, I think, the Q&A episode. It's good, but I, I don't think... It, I'm not listening to Tower of Power outside of this, so I would say three stars, but, but pretty mm-hmm. good. Uh, on the Good Ship Lollipop by Shirley Temple. Five stars. An inarguable classic of American soundscapes. Is this from a film or something? It is, I think, yeah. Okay. The Rodeo Song by Gary Lee and the Showdown. Do you know this? No. Okay. I didn't either. It has perhaps the most surprising intro lyrics I've ever heard in a song. Um, Worth me hearing on air or? Yeah, why don't you listen to it? Okay. And then I'll read the lyrics. And I think you got to get 15 seconds in or something to hear it. So, yeah. Okay. It's the Rodeo Song by Gary Lee and the Showdown. All right. I'm pulling this up. Okay. Uh, I'm going to start playing it. There's a giant Canadian flag on this YouTube video for some reason. Interesting. Uh-huh. Oh, oh, it says adult audiences only. Oh, this is this is going great. It is. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of a rude song. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. It just it keeps going. Yeah. Uh, so the lyrics for people who... Uh, you can just listen to it. It's pretty astonishing. It's from 1981, too. The opening lyrics are, Well, it's 40 below and I don't give a fuck. Got a heater in my truck and I'm off to the rodeo. <laughs> yeah. And then later, the, the, the opening for the second verse is, Well, here comes Johnny with his pecker in his hand. He's a mm-hmm. one-ball man and he's off to the rodeo. Yeah. Uh... I, I'm glad that this got solved because uh, that's a thing that my dad used to sing all the time. That it's 40 below and I don't give a no, fuck? No, uh, here comes Johnny with his pecker in his hand. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Did he say it by himself? Uh, no, it was just like uh, uh, one of the like weird songs that my dad would constantly like mutter to himself or whatever. It was like when my dad when uh, um, what, uh, the, the White Stripes... 
Oh. Your dad kept talking about how you took a white orchid and turned it blue. Uh, no, not that one. Yeah, the 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 denial twist from the album "Get Behind Me, Satan." Uh huh. In two thousand five, I have no idea. My 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 father is so far away from hearing the White Stripes organically in the world that I have no idea how this happened. But he mm-hmm. just began singing it all the time, <laughs> and I'll never know why. And he will have no, if I asked him about it, he would have no idea what I was talking about. But I remember that very clearly from <laughs> that era. Uh, a, a little little less interesting. Um, I think it's yours here. Yeah. Oh, that, that got two stars, by the way, for just yeah. for the novelty, but it's not a very good song. Yeah. Uh, o Sola Mio by Luciano Pavarotti. Uh, five stars. When I listen to it, it's like I am Carmela Soprano. Oh, that's right. That's right. And that's what you that's when you wake up every morning, you you're you're uh, moisturized, you're in your lane and you're thinking, <laughs> what can I do today to feel like Carmela Soprano, mm-hmm. to feel like a beset upon <laughs> suburban night? <laughs> uh, I got a thousand stars by Kathy Young in the Innocence. This is one star. This is like crooner teen music. <laughs> Man. Uh, Honky Tonk Women by the Rolling Stones. Four stars. That's good. Mm hmm. Gimme, gimme, gimme that honky tonk tune or whatever he says. Uh, you wrote hug band music by uh, is the the name of the song is jug band music, but I was really disappointed when I found that out because I wanted it to be <laughs> hug band music. It's a much better title. Uh, and uh, but by the Love and Spoonful, one star. This is the Love and Spoonful is not for me, unfortunately. Uh, I can see for miles by the Who, four stars. Moving on over by Hank Williams, three stars. This is a good song. I drove uh, by Hank, the Hank Williams mu- Museum recently on the highway. But you didn't move it on over to take a look at the exhibits. If I had not had a bunch of people in my car who would have thought that was terrible to do, I definitely would have at least thought about it. <laughs> uh, Hesitating Blues by Louis Armstrong, four stars. As Time Goes By by Frank Sinatra, three stars. Got to Give It Up by Marvin Gaye, three stars. Uh, Gloria by Van Morrison, two stars. Uh, and, and what I really thought about here, I'm glad that I listened to the song, uh, not because it's good, because I don't think it is, but it really is the kind of, uh, like, in my mind, this is what Larry's music is supposed to sound like. Mm, okay. Like, this, this to me is like the vibe of what Larry's got going on. Interesting. I don't know okay. if it's true or not, I can but yeah. sort of see that, yeah. Uh, Walking the Dog by Aerosmith, two stars. I'll Be Seeing You by Billie Holiday, three stars. Uh, Backwater Blues by Dave Van Ronk, three stars. Sister Kate uh, by Tom Rush. I could not find this, so I did not do it. Okay. Uh, This Land is Your Land by Woody Guthrie, four stars. Stand By Me by Benny King, three stars. Shelter from the Storm by Bob Dylan, one star. And I'll be, so this is my last one, and I'll be honest with you, this is when I was like, this is when I sent you a message, or when I, when, maybe when we got on the call. And I was like, why did you do this to me, Michael? Because I was like, Michael is definitely fucking with me by giving me the Eagles. Mm. Ugh. Ugh. The Eagles. The, the, the only people who could, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's like my evil super group, right? It's like a, mm-hmm. like a Metalocalypse style show about my life. And uh-huh. my, my enemies are the entirety of the Eagles, Bob Dylan, and Paul Simon. And you've given me all of them. <laughs> Peaceful, easy feeling? Go fuck yourself, the Eagles. One star. 
and then I finish this up with uh, <laughs> Yes, Yes, Yes by Dave Van Ronk, uh, three stars. Dave Van Ronk really got a lot of uh, uh, highlighting here at the end of the novel. Yeah, he did, just out of nowhere. Uh, this is now the second time Dave Van Ronk has showed up on a Range Touch podcast. And what was the first time? I don't know. You mentioned Dave Van Ronk at some point. Oh, okay. I and mean, some, that sounds like something I would do. Yeah, in Game Studies Study Buddies, because that it's it's so funny to me, because we were talking about Inside Lewin Davis somewhere, I don't know where. Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and you, uh, I, I, like, saved the audio out at one point and cut it out, because it's so funny, because you go, that's about Dave Van Ronk! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, it's funny to me. It might be the Just King things, I don't remember. But the, just the way you got so excited about Dave Van Ronk. Yeah. It was, was good. Well, it brings together two things I love, the music of Dave Van Ronk and the films of the Coen brothers. Wow. And yeah, that that's it. Uh, that's the stand complete and uncut. Uh, possibly our longest playlist yet. Thank God it's over. Uh, uh, Christine still might be longer somehow. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, well, next month. Uh, we'll be back here, and thankfully, we'll be we'll be reviewing something quite a bit shorter. Oh wait, what's this? It's one thing that's a bit shorter, and then another thing that's a bit shorter, and then another thing that's a bit shorter, and then another thing that's a bit shorter, and they're all being published together in one book. That's right. Steve has pulled his his uh uh classic trick on us again. He has published four novels as novellas in uh 1990s Four Past Midnight. And we're going to be talking about those. Yes. And uh, the bonus ode for next month, of course, the bonus ode for this month is uh, that you can find at patreon.com slash range touch is the uh, uh, completion of the uh, of the Kirk Hamilton stand chronicles, which is where Kirk came for the bonus episode for the original miniseries that we did uh, with the original stand and uh, now is back. Mm-hmm. To do as we threatened to make him do, uh, to do the original or the the most recent 2020 stand adaptation. We talk about that for quite a long time. You can listen to that right now by going to patreon.com slash range touch and giving us $5 a month, which we would really appreciate. Uh, uh, range touch only grows by word of mouth. Uh, and it only grows by people who listen to the show going and, and supporting us. So we really appreciate it. We've been able to bring on uh, someone to help us with some editing. Jordo, uh, who probably is not editing this, but is editing some of our stuff. Jordan Mallory. Um, and uh, so that's been great. Like the money goes to real stuff. We also, uh, you should check this out, a little bit of promo. We were able to help uh, bring out an issue of Indiepocalypse, which is a... Uh, games based uh, it's kind of like a game zine of small games that are kind of put together in a single launcher it's really cool um, and so you should check that out so it's Indiepocalypse there'll be a link in the description below uh, and so that's the kind of stuff uh, on top of uh, you know the immense amount of time that we put into these shows that the Patreon goes toward we we try to spread the money around in really cool ways and exciting ways um, to, to encourage other independent media in the world uh, and independent media creators so uh, if you think that's important you think that's cool maybe come on over to range touch next uh bonus ode so the bonus ode for december uh 2022 will be the langoliers tv movie um and uh we're we're gonna have a special guest for that episode as well which i actually need to schedule (laughs) uh so i will do that as soon as this uh as soon as this episode is done we're gonna have a special guest not yet announced but uh we'll let you know as soon as that uh, uh as soon as we have that in 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 the can as it were uh and then we're on to some other stuff so uh really exciting really cool things michael what's coming up in just king things beyond four past midnight you got a little teaser for us 
Oh, let's see. Uh, let me just take a look at what the the 90s have in store for us as they really kick off. Oh my goodness, we're going to be returning to the world of the Dark Tower, uh, returning to Castle Rock. We're going to get the... Uh, uh, the dyad of novels about women during the eclipse. Uh, and then we'll get another short story collection. Oh my goodness. Wow. He really hits the ground running in the nineties. Uh-huh. Yeah. I mean, cause by June of next year, we're going to be hitting insomnia. So like the big mythopoetic, uh, extra textual dark tower stuff will be coming as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, exciting. Super exciting. So, Kinda, yeah, if you want to yeah. hear us talk about over the next six months, The Wasteland, Needful Things, Gerald's Game, Dolores Claiborne, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, and Insomnia, and that's only half the year, then, you know, continue listening to this show because we're going to do all this in, in order. Yeah, and what's uh, kind of notable about this, too, is there's not really adaptations for many of those, so we're going to have to get creative. Yeah. That's fascinating. All right, so let me read to you some reviews. If you go to the Apple Podcast thing... And, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts, just King Things on Apple Podcasts. And you leave us a five-star review, I might read your review. Um, so you do it. And, and uh, if it's funny or if, if it's uh, interesting, I'll, I'll read it out. We got this one, five stars from Egg for Lunch. When I was 10, I bought my father a Bob Dylan songbook for his birthday because I thought he would love it. That book has sat in his basement gathering dust for 21 years. Maybe I love this podcast because of the charming and insightful commentary it provides. Maybe I love this podcast because it finally explained to me why my father didn't like his birthday present. Who could say? Five stars. That's very funny. Uh, this is from Action FTW. Five stars from Action FTW. Michael may be our darling boy, but Cameron is my little meow meow. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting, interesting uh, stuff going on here. That's the, the title, but listen to the entire backlog in a haze of driving and playing Minecraft. Am now an expert on Stephen King, despite having never read or seen one of his works. Much better to listen to the Beatles. Oh, I'm sorry, much better to listen to <laughs> than the Beatles, which we all know. <laughs> uh, the other text is funny, too, though. Alt text. Um, I just like the idea of like this. This is it's much better to listen to the Beatles. We do uh, we do have a non five star review that uh, that says we made someone waste their time by reading the Tommyknockers, which is <laughs> which is also funny to me. Um, although I don't agree, I think Tommyknockers is grand. Yeah. We we gave you all the caveats we needed about uh, our opinion on the Tommyknockers in that episode. Like, we did. I just, like, I think it's good. I I'm still holding out for it. I I'm unapologetic. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think it's good. I think if you feel like you wasted your time, I you know what. Two thirds of the book I read, I feel like I waste my time. So, you know, that's how it goes. Not just for this show, but in a general sense in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I don't know. Not every book's a not every book's a hit for everybody. That's okay. We can all feel a different way about it. I do think you should change your review stars to five stars, though, because mm-hmm. that would help us out materially in a way that it has no impact on you. That's a, that's a way for you to think about. You should all think about it this way. <laughs> truly. Uh, leaving a five-star review for our show has no impact on you as a human being. None. It's, it's a freebie on your part, right? It has a significant material impact for us because the more five-star reviews you get on Apple Podcasts, the higher you are sequenced up. The more reviews you have, period, the higher you are sequenced So it costs you nothing other than a couple minutes of your time and hitting the five button. But for us, that has like a huge actual impact. Uh, you know, impact. It gets more people to listen to the show. So if you like the show and you like to do it, a hmm, where do I fall? Three to five stars. That that actually, it's much like uh uh like the oh what's the thing like um 
telemarketing right or any kind of survey the reality uh-huh. is whatever you feel the only thing that actually benefits the other person on the other end is five stars right like if you mm-hmm. uh, if you are on the phone with a um you know someone who is helping you with a service helping you get your internet back online or something like that and you're like they did a great job but not a perfect job i'm giving them eight stars you might as well have given them zero <laughs> as far as like their performance is measured same thing here give us five stars please mm-hmm. it helps us out Mm-hmm. you excited about oh go ahead go ahead i was, I was going to end the show <laughs> oh i was going to talk about uh four past midnight but maybe we'll just do that in the episode yeah michael what is the catchphrase that allows us to end and makes me stop talking well if you don't want to give us a, a five-star review for us then maybe at least you could do it for steve